What's happening, my dysfunctional family members out there listening tonight? We're going to have a great show, I'm sure. I'm sitting down with my longtime friend and possibly the best bassist I've ever rocked a stage with, Mike Copeland. Mike's been playing music in Ohio since 1994 and has been in more bands than I can even count. He's probably played at almost every music venue here in Athens throughout the years. He's definitely seen the city grow. He moved out to LA to pursue life and music out west and he was there for about a decade and dove deep into what the LA scene had to offer. And he's back now, the area he loves. We'll talk about what helped shape him as a musician, his history with Athens, hear some crazy stories about his time in LA and try to figure out what brought him back here. So grab a drink and turn the bass up. It's View from the Hill. I'm on my way.
What's happening, everybody? That was Mike Copeland with uh, one of his jams from when he was out in L.A. We're going to be talking about some of those times in a little bit. I'm with Mike Copeland right now. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. Awesome, dude. We were trying to have you here actually like two episodes ago or something. It, it took a while to get you in. Yes, it did. Yeah, we had a couple setbacks there. I think that's more my fault, really, than anything. It's also Mike Retushin's fault. Yeah. He, he had to go first. He likes to do that to me. <laughs> Love you, brother. I know you're listening. <laughs> so, um, we heard in the, uh, the kind of intro there that you've been playing music since 1994. Are you some sort of old ass? Guy? Yeah, I'm old. I'm 40. I'm 40. Feeling it. From originally from the Athens area? No, uh, I was born in Florida, moved to Ohio when I was eight, came down to Athens to go to school so I could get over its checks to buy music stuff with, and uh, pursued that for 10 or 11 years down here, went to Hawking, went to OU, and uh, then I moved to LA, then I moved back. Uh, weapon of choice is the bass. The bass, oh yeah. Has it ever been anything else? I've dabbled with all the other stuff just because I love music and uh, I like playing drums, but the instrument that I feel the best playing and enjoy the most is bass by far. Right on, right on. So when, as a bass player, how does that work then? You, you get to Athens and you're just a bass player. How do you start playing out? Like you can't just go to open jams by yourself bases, do you? Or yeah, yeah. You can, um, and I did a little bit of that, but the, actually, I really wasn't that good of a, of a bassist to go to jams and just play improvisationally. I knew every funk song in the book, and I could do that, but um, I wasn't confident, actually. I hadn't played out enough to just want to go to open jams, so what I did actually was... Back in the day, when you before message boards and Facebook and all that, you used to print up a flyer with tear off. What's that? You know, yeah, exactly. Um, so I didn't have any computer skills at all. In fact, I didn't even use the internet at the time. Nobody did. This was early, or I guess that was ninety-seven. My roommate, later roommate at the time, introduced me to the internet. Um, anyway, I made a flyer, Kinko's, drew a picture of some stuff on it and wrote like funk, reggae, hip hop, you know, all the things I like to do with big, colorful explosions around it. Like it was amazing, you know, and, uh, new in town bassist and, you know, with that on it. And I wrote my number with all the little tear offs on the bottom. And I went around to Athens and stapled to every uh, light pole and telephone post and all that. And it's, I'll never forget. I had a pager at the time. Uh, no landline and I got my first page you know say you know somebody said you, you know left a voicemail on the on the pager saying yeah you know is this that new cool bass player in town into hip-hop and reggae and all this jam music give me a call right away so I ran down to Tony's and used the payphone there because I lived up on Columbia Avenue I was so excited and I called the guy I go, yeah this is Mike the bass player what's going on he goes oh Mike you're the new bass player you hung your flyers up everywhere uptown right I said yeah he goes, yeah, this is uh, the code enforcement officer. I'm going to need you to go take all those down, or I'm going to have to issue you a citation because you're not allowed to staple shit to the telephone poles <laughs> and light meters in Athens County. And I was like, oh, shit, okay. That was your first hit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty good. But I guess early on, I was going to the dugout which is now gone. It was a bar across the street from B Dale's BP, the old mm -hmm. t-shirt store. Oh, yeah. And uh, 
there was a, a hip hop DJ, I mean drinks that had two turntables and he had a set down there on some night of the week. And I started jamming the bass during his sets with him and, uh, kind of got some friends in the music loop through that. And that just evolved sort of the way things do, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Athens is pretty good about that. I've gone to quite a bit of even just like uh, open jams myself and, and done some hip hop stuff with some with just one band. And, and it's amazing after doing something with just one group. Those, those open jams here in Athens are really inviting. You know, you get up there with one person, and suddenly you've you got friends. Yeah, that's exactly how it worked. Um, I met my initial network of friends from here, which are still my good friends to this day through that little scene. I got my dog that way. Um, you know, but the first band I actually got into in Athens happened because, you know, I still wanted to do a funk band and I was listening to like Jamiroquai and Diggable Planets, all the cool stuff from <laughs> at that time that was like kind of on the alternative funk and hip hop edge, you know? And, uh, I saw, I couldn't really find anybody. Somebody kept telling me about a drummer that I should get a hold of. And, uh, so I was on the lookout for that person. I kept calling, leaving messages, never heard back. Who was that person? It was Scott Fisher who actually ended up playing drums with me in soul food. I met him eventually and I'll explain that cause it's a good one. But I was driving past the Athens middle school and I saw this dude walking across the street with a guitar case. So I just whipped over and said, yo, you play guitar? And he's like, obviously, you know, and I was like, okay, what do you want into? And he's like, uh, mostly like funk. And I was like, awesome. And so we hung out. Match made in heaven. Right. Total bromance. We immediately went to my apartment and jammed and he knew every, every cover I knew. And, uh, cause still at this point, you're just, you're just jamming out covers, right? You're not yeah. really doing too much. I had written a few songs here and there, but my desire was to be a part of a party, you know, and I figured, you know, covers, you know, <laughs> I wanted to play some covers. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, uh, he had some friends and we became buddies and we're writing music together and learning covers together. And we were looking for a drummer and, uh, he took me to a house party on Franklin Avenue and we all got wasted and I passed out there and in the morning I woke up and somebody started talking to me about music and the bands and stuff. And I said, yeah, I'm still trying to get a hold of this Scott Fisher guy. He's a total prick. He won't return my calls, but I heard he's a really good funk drummer. And then the sheet starts moving on a couch across the room from me. Dude pops up. I'm Scott, <laughs> you know? So... That's how we met finally. And we went to this house over on uh, Elliott Street, ate some shrooms. Can I say that? And uh, You can say anything you want. Yeah. And we had a really, one of the best jams of my life. When, when, you, when you first have that kind of a connection that every musician knows, when you're having a deep, you know, soul to soul jam where you meet a true brother in music and you have that feeling. The first time I ever had that was in that basement with Scott, and it was sick, man. He felt That's it, awesome. too. And we were just like, when it was over, we were like, fuck yes. And to this day, he's he's the best drummer I've ever seen, professional or amateur. He's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. So even back then, you know, we got our first question in the house tonight. This uh, this question is for our, our guest Great. from last week, Retushin. Uh -huh. He wants to know, you know, and I want to know even maybe back this far, because we're starting early. You know, just how much has Fish influenced your music? Oh, Retushin. <laughs> Actually, quite a bit. More than he knows, because we've never had this conversation. But 
I, you know, there's a few different things out there in life that I really like a lot, but I'm not as involved with them as I'd want to be because the culture surrounding them is annoying. The Harley Davidson motorcycles is one of them. The band fish is the other. <laughs> um, but I bought lawn boy and rift that those albums, I don't know if riffs, the name of the album or the song, but it had that song, uh, down with disease on it. I had heard that through one of my hippie friends and, uh, I fucking loved the the uh, phaser on the bass line. It just sounded sick. It sounded like water dropping in a cave. You know, it was like, really funky. And I was like, that's sick, man. Bought that album. Thoroughly liked the whole album. That's as far as I ever went with Fish. But I got an MXR Phase 90. I bought it because of that song. And it was pretty influential on my bass playing. Well, that's sweet. I have heard yeah. uh, you doing some Phase stuff before, you know, when we've been rocking out together. And I mean, yeah. I'm sure you came to Athens and around town and... Uh, you know, there were probably quite a bit of fish fans around Athens in 97. Oh, you yeah. Were like, I don't want to do the funk. Yeah. Well, the funk. you know what? Those people, um, I'm sure Retushin's saying, what do you mean, you people? But uh, those fans, fish fans love funk music. And, and fish is a funky band. And a lot of the people that were into our band... Uh, loved what we were doing soul food because it was funky it was jammy you know we went out there with the funk jams you know we turned brick house into a half hour anthem you know jamming mm -hmm. but yeah i mean that was a huge part of the scene everyone had patchwork pants all my friends love fish had dreads you know we're into the dead and other you know disco biscuits and every all the usual suspects of that scene yeah well you keep talking about this man soul food, you know that was with that was with Scott. You yeah, know what I'm saying yeah. Um, but how did that keep evolving? I mean, how did that? It it, it was just you and Scott, but who else ended up joining that? And how did that end up happening? <laughs> well, before I came down here, I was jamming with my buddy Ryan, who him and I decided in high school. You know, I wanted to play bass, he wanted to play drums. We got those instruments our senior year. Neither one of us knew how to play them. We started playing together. And then I moved down here and I kept saying, you got to move down here. You know, let's get this band going, especially after I met Mark, the guitar player. And because uh, we needed a drummer, but he lived in Columbus. And our friend Rick, who was a killer keyboard player, real jazz guy, much better musician than the both of us. He made us sound great. So we wanted him to be in the band, you know, <laughs> obviously. But it just didn't work logistically with the Columbus Athens thing for us at the time. And uh, when I met Scott, it was a no-brainer. So I called Ryan. I said, look, we've got Scott. He can commit as a full-time drummer. Why don't you play percussion? It'll be much less of a time commitment, you know? And he was down with that. And so he started playing the congas and all the percussion stuff in the group, which really added because we were a rhythm-oriented band. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had another guy, Steve Blaha, who lived in a like some kind of a makeshift shack in New Marshfield. I remember when I went out to meet him to get him in the band. He was tripping on acid and he had this tambourine that he wanted to show me, like audition with, you know. And I was like, You're cool. We've heard you play up the stage. You're in the band. Just want to hook up, you know. And he started telling me about how when he looks at this tambourine, he can see faces on it and all this other stuff. But I remember uh, he told me that when his mom first came out to visit him to see where he lived, she cried. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I could see why she'd be disappointed. But it was like an Athens hippie kid of the 90s dream house. It was like this shack, like something Frodo Baggins would live in, you know, in the Shire. It was like that. So did Soul Food, uh, did, did you guys start with doing the covers too? Like you were wanting to start with covers to rock some parties? We played open stages, mostly did instrumentals. And uh, 
that were original and vocally uh, all covers. We did a lot of Prince songs. I mean, we knew the entire Purple Rain album and a ton of other songs from his his stuff. We did all the basic funk covers, yeah. Brick House, P-Funk, all that stuff. And we started to write songs of our own um, and slip them in there because we weren't sure, you know, if people were going to dig them or not. And it all went over well, so... Yeah, that's I mean, how we do that. That's how you got to first start off doing it. I know, I know that for sure. I mean, yeah, slip them in as a secret. Yeah, you got to kind of slip like them this? in there and see if what the response is. And if nobody liked it, you just immediately play Brick House or something else that you know people are going to like. <laughs> was it a um, was it a was it a house party scene that you were getting into first kind of thing? I mean, both both we played house parties, uh, some really good shows. I mean, we played. We even got hired by a fraternity one time to play on at uh, some house party on Palmer Street. We rented all this shit from Studio E Music back when they used to rent PAs and all that stuff. We overkilled it big time, man. The cops came, shut us down at 10.01 exactly, but one of the cabinets actually set on fire during the show. It was awesome. Like That's definitely one thing you want to check off the list is shit catching on fire during your show. You know? It's funny because the older I get, I, I hate seeing that kind of stuff actually. like I become the old man. And I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, God damn it. Why are they burning a couch? But yeah, I agree. I think checking one off as a musician, that's yeah. kind of a standard that you got to get in there. You you look at it and tell yourself that you've rocked so hard the equipment caught fire. It's not because it was a piece of shit rental. It's because you rock so hard. You know. Didn't that happen at the skull with the GTWA? Yeah, we blew a sign up, or what was it that happened there? I thought Ian's whole uh, stabs whole setup just started smoking. Yeah, and uh, and to clarify, GTWA is a band that Hill and I were in, yeah, which we'll, we'll get to. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. You know what we what we. What we lacked in uh, skill, we made up for in showmanship. And theatrics by far, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I ran into Jeff Cottrell, longtime Athens uh, resident and fan of us and buddy, the other day. And he said, uh, I loved coming to Grand Theft Audio All-Stars show because it was a show. When I came to see you guys' performance, you know, it was a show. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty much what was happening, you know. It was almost, I would build myself up for those for those Christmas shows that we started having, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. So you were doing the party thing, you know, with soul food and, and getting it down in Athens. What were, how easy was it to kind of get into starting to get it booked? Were you doing the booking? Was somebody else doing the booking? Did you um, friends with, with some of the, the booking guys here in Athens back then? Cause this is still around the late nineties, right? Yeah. 98. We were, once we got the core band together, um, we all, moved in together to a house on Stewart Street, and we had a pretty solid act going. And we, we met booking agents through the open stages. We'd play the open stage, and it, you know, when it went over in a way that the, the bar liked us, they'd ask us to play a show. But uh, we always wanted to get into the union, because at the time, you know, that was sort of like a scene that was, you know, the union is sort of a... You've got some of the grungiest dirtbag musicians and people in the scene there that have this air of, 
they're better than everyone, <laughs> you know, in the in the punk music scene but there. It was like you needed to be. Yeah, you got to be there because it was like the real rock bar. Right. And well, it the way was, I always viewed it is there were bars to play music at in Athens. Yeah. And then there's the union. Right, exactly. I mean, it was like, you know, the, the Swindlefish was a great venue and so was the dugout at the time. They had good sound systems, good sound guys. Retution says uh, he loved seeing you at Mama Einstein's even. Yes, yeah. Traveling around, getting around to all sorts of places. Mama Einstein's was what the dugout became and we played a few shows there i remember i kicked the mic stand over there we were videotaping it and i felt so into this one part we were playing voodoo child and i kicked the mic stand over and jeff their sound guy immediately ran and picked it and propped it back up and that was like one of those rock star moments you know when someone uh, fixes your stupid drunken thing like you're a professional we kept i rewound that a thousand times and, and watched it on the video pretty dumb where, but yeah where was your favorite place for you guys to play where did you think like soul food kind of got the most you know acceptance at what was the best venue for you guys to play there i think that we th we liked the dugout the swindlefish and the union the best although we played the skull casa even poppers we we, we definitely were the first and last band ever to play at poppers because that was a total debacle but the union is probably where my best memories of that band and in music ever Oh, um, absolutely. Happened for me as a performer. I agree. So even even to this day, you'll still say the Union. Best times, best absolutely. times ever as a musician. The, the Union is a place, and I've been all across the country playing music. And when you talk about real rock music, real art and creative people, people that are fans of music and students of the game of music and um, that's that's real. It's real there, you know. Uh -huh. Other places you go in, you party, you get a free drinks, and you you might get paid, you might get laid, whatever. But you know, to this day, I think when people play the Union, they know they're going to a real rock and roll venue. You know, it smells like it, it feels like it. It's the real deal. Absolutely. And and that's where my best memories are by far. We have one video from there that they aired on the uh, Channel Twenty Three Public Access down here for years, and I still I just actually converted that to DVD. And uh, that's probably my favorite thing for me to look back on and reflect on that night, that show. You know, that was, I was still a young musician and still, you know, learning. Uh, I was probably 30% of the player I am now. And at that time, everything was still fantastical and brand new. And I had never done this and never done that. And, and that night was a lot of firsts and it was good jam. Good night. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Mike Copeland having good times at, at the Union here in Athens, Ohio. I'm hanging out with Mike Copeland. It's on View From The Hill live. You can listen to the replay, www.viewfromthehill.com. Mike, we're going to listen to some of this stuff uh, that you did with Soul Food a little bit. Um, I think some of this stuff's live. We're going to listen to a little B-Boys instrumental you did. I think that's one of the, the like a cover from one of the Beastie Boys instrumental CDs. Yep. Uh, we got a song called Chocolate Syrup. Recorded at the Union. Recorded at the Union. And we got Happy Nuts. Yeah, that was recorded at the dugout. All right, this is Soul Food. My guest, Mike Copeland. We're talking life, love of music, Athens, Ohio, and everything in between. View from the Hill, www.viewfromthehill.com. We're going to listen to some Soul Food, and we'll be right back. Let's have fun. Thank you. 
Attention everyone. Uh, hey. Attention. Uh, we let the band play over, so you must leave as quickly as you possibly can. You shake hands with the bandmates. Pat them on the back, but you must exit the bar. We are closed.
What's happening, people? It's View from the Hill, www.viewfromthehill.com. I'm hanging out with Mike Copeland. What's going on? What's happening, man? Yo. So that was some of your music, Soul Food. We were talking about that. Some live stuff, Chocolate Syrup, the second song in there, live from the Union. I like that one that's uh, the Beastie Boys cover. You guys nailed that. That was an awesome recording the day that we made that song. Um, Where was that done at? 13 Brown Avenue. Every time I go by there, I've got a little sweet spot. That was uh, that was our jam spot for Soul Food, Scott Fisher's house. Um, we were super into the whole instrumental acid jazz funk thing, you know, and that album came out and blew our minds, of course, and we loved it. We decided to do that song, and uh, we were all sitting on a couch listening to it. At the time, we had a tape deck. If you young kids don't know what that is, you know, like a Maxell audio cassette, double deck, you know, stereo component, hooked up with RCA jacks to our mixing board in the jam room so we could record our jams and play back and tell ourselves how great we were. You know, you know how it is. And uh, <clears throat> so we sat around and we played the song once or twice on Scott's stereo. He had these Sirwin Vega, you know, eight foot speakers that now a two inch thing sounds just as good but he had that killer stereo we jammed out that song and we smoked down and we we're like all right let's go try it so we went in pushed record and we played it one time and the version that you just played was that take was that recording and there was just it was one of those situations where the microphones you know there were three microphones in the room on that recording one hanging from the light on the ceiling, SM57, pointing straight at the floor. There was a mattress in the doorway to make it sound awesome. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, That's the awesome technique. Put a mattress in the door. Yeah. and Fatten uh, up, up the sound. We had like some blankets over the window and some other things. And uh, a mic on the drums and the vocal mic. But we didn't sing, so it was just picking up sound. But the vocal mic, we had uh, some delay on for a little you know, ambience. Mm -hmm. And that bled pretty well through the other mics, the sound and everything, because the our amateur recording knowledge. And it just made for a really good vibe on that track. It sounded really good. It definitely does, man. When I was listening to the songs you sent me that we wanted to play on this, uh, you were saying, check this one out. Check yeah. this one out. That's the one we did on the Beast Boys, and I've been grooving to that. That was it's been putting me in a good place. Yeah. Yeah, I always love that version of that song. It was a good memory. One of the better recordings, actually, uh, I've done, you know, because it was all live. It was There was no, we went Thelonious Monk style, you know. If we didn't nail it, we'd just come back to it some other day. And, right. and, and so we were pretty good because at that time, everybody recorded everything at once unless you had a four track. And that was just way too complicated for any of us to think about. None of us were very technical as far as that goes. You know, nothing was digital then. And in fact, I remember we took that tape to a kid named Zach Wise's house who lived over off of uh, Lancaster Street by the middle school. And he was like the one kid in town that had the capability of taking a cassette tape and magically running it through a computer and popped out a CD with a song on it, which was absolutely <laughs> amazing at the time. He could even print off a adhesive sticker to make our album cover, CD. which everybody later found out that when your car gets hot, the shit bubbles up and gets stuck in that CD player forever. Yeah. I ruined a million people's fucking CD Me players. Me too. I handed out so many demos <laughs> that fucked people's CD players out. <laughs> yeah, you live and learn, man, on those type of deals. I don't know if I gained listeners or lost listeners yeah. on those demos. Got some listeners, 
lost some friends and some CD players. <laughs> so you were jamming out with Soul Food. I mean, one of the things that I kind of like seem to remember hearing of stories of you is that you've you've been in just so many bands. I mean, how many bands have you even been in when you were in Athens? Back no idea. Probably twenty. <laughs> twenty actually performing groups. How how about give us some names of some ones that you liked being in? Soul Food, you know, Flux Capacitor was a good one. We were kind of a prog funk group. Uh, Boombox, I was in with Retution. That was, I'm not even sure what to call that. I mean, we didn't rehearse. We showed up at Ohulis, which was Jackie's, uh -huh. and we'd play. We had a core group of musicians. Um, most of them hated me, but... Somehow it worked. I showed up, we played, and and, and it's a common theme in a lot of bands that <laughs> probably so, man. You know, that time I was a drunken monster, though. But you know, I could play and was fun, and kind of the wild card. I think was part of the interest in me, you know. <laughs> but there was a kid, Scotty Fordemeyer, great drummer, uh, and Retushin on guitar. There was some other guitar player, another kid, uh, Anthony Thog Martin, was a lot of Lancaster local. He played with us, and it, that band was. Totally improvisational funk jam. And um, they usually had me sit out when someone wanted to play a minor chord because I don't, I never wanted to do that at the time. But that was one. I mean, there was Soul Food, there was Serious Effect. Um, I mean, some of them I don't even remember, you know, and we were actually performing and had practices, and I don't even know the names. It was just kind of the lifestyle I was living at the time. Could, could you feel back then? Because that was kind of at the turn of like the digital time. And I feel like then is when um, sort of the influx, um, you know, not as much as, as now maybe, but um, back then was when the turn to digital. And like you were saying, everyone was getting equipment to be able to record. Could you kind of feel the music scene changing as more and more kids got their hands on cheap equipment and, and they could become a band suddenly? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that was the, actually, that was right when I met you. Because and I started doing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you were still in high school or just out of high school. Just I think out. you're just out of high school, living up on Miller Street. And, yeah, yeah. And Greenley, Ryan Greenley, who was a guy who was later in a band with me, was uh, somehow we were buddies. Who knows? And he introduced me to you guys over there for some other reason. I don't right, know and you did. I remember you came over there. It was about. Shit, that was about 14 years ago, probably, and you came over and laid down some bass yeah. on some hip-hop stuff that we were doing in our raggedy-ass one room. closet weird. Yeah. One, yeah. It was a side room with a closet that was decked out with some probably sperm-stained foam Bed batting yeah. on, on the walls. Who knows where that came from? That makes it sound good. Padding always yeah. makes everything sound better. Right. Don't use luminol on those. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah I, remember, I remember that night because... Ryan and I, yeah. So that I mean, but that was when I was starting to get into it, right? I'm I was one of those. Kids. Oh yeah, yeah. I was starting to get into the digital thing because I could afford it suddenly, right? And so yeah. we started getting into it. But were you already seeing it? Because you were kind of out on the scene. No, I, I Did, was. Was it getting flooded at all? Like suddenly, shit. Where are all these kids coming from? It was, but I didn't see it so much because my clique of people were getting on the edge of the older musicians in town. And so we were sort of highbrowed and snobby towards it because we were all analog right. and, and, and taped to reel to reel and stuff. We want to hear about no digital bullshit. Those kids are fake anyway. Right, and they can't, it's only button touching. You know, that was what our opinions were. 
And and I noticed, you know, it, it did bring forth a lot of pieces of shit uh, groups because they could, anybody with a kazoo and a computer could make an album that sounded fucking amazing. Um, so, you know, the scene was suddenly flooded with uh, billions of demos, but it also still allowed good musicians to, to be heard. Well, know? I would imagine, too, that you might see the change because being from a college town, too, you've got the kids who are all getting that software they're suddenly they're using their computers all the younger people kind of getting into this whole digital way i mean when pro tools came around and you could afford it i yeah. thought it was an insane thing <laughs> the first time i experienced that was with that guy amin that i went back to the dugout situation where the first musician i met in town he liked what i was doing he brought some type of a hard disk recorder over which was like a console with uh, like a integrated 16-track mixer in it and a bunch of drum machine sounds and all that. He plugged straight into that. He gave me a click track, told me to lay down a, a bass line. Mm -hmm. So I laid a bass line down to his song, and about two weeks later, I was over at his house. He said, hey, you want to hear that song? So he put it on. I said, well, who, who's playing bass? He's like, that's you. I'm like, what do you mean that's me? And he had been able to cut and splice the bass line one note at a time and re- uh, compose a, a baseline of his own right and i felt completely raped and shocked at what happened and like walked out and was like hmm interesting but uh you know with you guys like i realized the advantage of it with greenley that night that we made that track up on miller street um you know because back to the soul food thing we we had learned to play everything in one take and if one guy farted it in the fucking best solo in the fucking song the whole take, the whole thing is ruined. It's done. You know, because there you have some other sound, or the mic cable got tripped over, whatever may happen. You guys, I, I start laying the bass line down for the track. You're like, okay, cool, and I'm like, what? I'm I'm just getting into the cut. Yeah, that's you know? all we need. And then you spliced it and laid it, you know, four verses, yeah. four choruses, and I was like, wow, you know, um, and that was a great time to be to to be a musician and see, you know, that evolution of production happen right because it's uh definitely one of the landmark moments in the music production right it was know? a kind of a change like it went from like the garage band to the garage studio right totally yeah you know yeah at that time everybody had a studio everybody was saying man you heard my demo i was like i don't even know you could rap and they put their shit in a right. cd in the car and we'd be jamming to it and it would sound great at first it's a bunch of kids in their mom and dad's garage playing yeah. music live and now it's a bunch of kids playing live and then their buddy in the corner recording it all on yeah. his computer yeah and and i would have thought somewhere like in athens that would have kind of blown up and maybe you'd see like an influx of of something like wow there's a lot more people trying to trying to perform now suddenly. well so i think it records so they think they're musicians right? yeah it definitely did i mean the hip-hop open stages went from like you and hill and or i mean you and schwartz and a couple of other cats that had been known to do it to all of a sudden luke scanlon's an mc andy gideon's an mc every motherfucker that was buddies on the outskirts of our scene was like hey man shit i can record that they, i got a computer they get a thing bam they got an album and you know it turned a lot of people that had perceived music production to be walking into a building with five engineers and you got to pay five grand to come out with a demo to people that actually had some talent and it's accessible right at this point oh i you loved know? it i mean people can talk all the shit they want about it but i personally love it yeah love it's it. a good thing and i've i've went back and forth with it but you know overall 
It's about the love of music, and if it gives people access to it, great. So you're growing up in Athens, and you're checking things off your, you know, I want to be in a band checklist. And so, you know, you're playing places, you're getting wasted while you're playing, probably free beers, right? Every Check. time, every time. Uh, you're getting the women, uh-huh. right? Because, uh-huh. I mean, that's kind of what you start playing music for, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, and then you have the crazy drug stories, Check. You had the burning couch, you said. Uh-huh, yeah. Check. So yep. at the end of it, I mean, you were kind of rocking pretty hard when we got in with you. But you want to do bigger things, go go make an L.A. move, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Was, was the move because it was like, I want to do kind of bigger things? I want to try to get into a bigger music scene? Was it for a music scene? Yes. There were a lot of factors that led up to that, you know. Initially, like you said, I started playing music because I wanted a rock party the chicks, the drugs, the adventure, all these things that you think, you know, I was a wild kid and I, and I wanted to push the limits and this was a good way to do it legally and not have to fucking pay at the courthouse every Monday for it. You know, look at that in, in Athens, Ohio. Yeah. And it's fun. Yeah. And, um, so I did it, you know, with, I mean, and we went to soul food then we went to this band, that band, you know, Retution and I did the, uh, boombox thing it was great i don't even know when i got kicked out of that or what happened to that or whatever then uh with serious effect then with grand theft audio all-stars was at the pinnacle of my rock bottom <laughs> if, if you will the top of your bottom <laughs> yeah exactly and um never rocked harder you know anywhere from coast to coast never rocked harder than when i was with gtaa because it was like you know the real deal That's of rock and roll stupid um, and that started, you know, Ian, our guitarist, he moved to Chicago, uh, something else happened. I think Dave sold his drum kit or whatever. And that became harder to do. You know, we tried some shows with some other guys, it just wasn't the same. And none of us really cared. We didn't want to continue the band because we liked the experience, you know? And so that fizzled out and, I just got out of a really long and painful relationship and I just wanted a change in my life and change, i change there's the word yeah i wanted to, wanted to change. i wanted to change and i knew when i start like going back to start now i thought you know, i want to get some chicks and party i should play an instrument well i thought about it and i loved hip-hop and was jamming to nwa at the time and uh it had all these funky samples so i thought well the bass it only has four strings that ought to be the easiest route to learn and party and get the chicks and, and be in the middle of the, the spotlight and whatever. I actually didn't realize how much I was going to love music at that point. Right. But uh, Somebody out in the audience here, he's they're playing the seven degrees of separation game right now. And we've got Wes Hunter out there, a uh, fan of music. He's doing things in Cincinnati. He's with Al Udell. Yeah, he says that you were in a band with Anthony, uh, who later went on to uh, help create Papadocio. Yeah, that's that was Boombox. That was yeah. Boombox. I was in the original lineup uh, of Papadocio was in that group, but um, I don't even know what happened. I was the bassist, and I don't know if Grand Theft Audio formed or if they kicked me out or if I left or whatever. Actually, what's interesting is Anthony actually at one point dated my wife. When they were in high school, I think, because <laughs> we're all from Lancaster. More degrees separate. Yeah, right on. Anthony's a good guy, great guitarist. Last time I saw him, I was at a work in security, which is a joke in itself. At a Grateful Dead 
the Rat Dog Show in Terra Alter, West Virginia. And me and Church were down there working. Somehow we got this gig. And uh, Anthony popped his head out of a tent one morning, like 10 a.m. And I was like, oh, what's up? Last time I seen him. <laughs> but yeah, back to the L.A. thing. I just, I, you know, I needed a change. I had a, nothing was really going anywhere. I was tired of school. I had worked in the field I had studied, which was my backup plan, was to work in the natural resources field. Mm-hmm. And I, all my dreams were crushed with that when, you know, I realized that's all about money when you work for a government agency it's not about saving the trees and the uh endangered owl and all that it's about getting some money and i'd done that for about three years i'd played music forever but initially when i started out playing music you know i wanted a party then i got to party then i thought well maybe i can be in a band and then i was able to be in a band and i was like "Mm, maybe i can be in one of the best bands in my area and soul food was playing out one time junebug gave us an award for with grand theft audio for the band that had the smallest jam room and played the most shows in a week (laughs) because we played like casa ohulis a house party and the festival and like the skull in one week you know And we were known around here. I'd done everything you could do in Athens. So I thought, well, I mean, if 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 I've done this, maybe you can keep going. So I so I said, fuck it. And I sent out some resumes to some tropical fish stores in Los Angeles because I'm good at that and had worked in that field a long time. And uh, a guy offered me a job. So then all I needed was a place to live. Same day, I got an email back from a band I had sent a demo tape to out there that said, yo, we'd like you to play bass in our band. And they had a killer demo. They were playing at the Whiskey, the Sunset Strip, the you know Staples Arena, playing big shows in L.A. I thought, fuck, I got to get out there. And they offered me a place to crash until I got my feet on the ground. So I uh, was living in church's bedroom because he was... Uh, this is a friend of Hill and I, a college kid. He was out of town in Cleveland because he wasn't allowed to stay here during the summer. He said <laughs> I could stay in his bedroom. I had been kicked out of my apartment, bought alcohol instead of rent. And I just said, fuck it, man. I packed up my truck and bounced. I, See you later. Yeah. So. And so you got there and kind of immediately was diving in because right away you were contacted by by people you had said demos to. So right away you're diving into the, the Yeah, scene. I'm in a band before I get there. And so I moved into this house in uh, West Hollywood. The guys are douchebags. Seemed fantastic, and that was the pro- That's another problem with the with the uh, advent of digital music was their fucking demo sounded like, you know, Mozart had direct had uh, composed it and produced it, and they could barely play. They sounded terrible. When they you were- showed up live, it was a little bit different than the than yeah, what they had shown. And, and you. they were dickheads. They weren't the kind of people that I wanted to be around at all. And um, so I stayed there. That thing fizzled apart. I threw a whiskey bottle at someone's face during a practice because I was still living the Classic. Athens. Classic Mike. Cook. Yeah, I was still the Athens way. Come to practice, get wasted, spark up, and let's jam. <laughs> and like you know, Mike. That's how you do it, right? Mike Rattusian is a guest on last show, uh-huh. and he nailed it pretty good talking about in L.A. You know, they want a thirty-minute set. They want forty-six songs in thirty minutes. You know, right. and everything, the dance moves, the outfits, everything's got to be perfect. And that's what these guys were focused on. I was still in the we're bros. Let's create music and have a good time. And it's not about a good time when you're when you're in the professional music world. It's a job, and uh, that's how it should be, you know. But that's a, that's a hard crossover to make and making that realization too. You got to show up sober and get shit done, and it's work. It's, a different. it's not that fun, especially right. if you're get hired as a plug and play bassist for someone else's creative dream. You know, you don't get to play the licks you want to do. You don't get to really do what you want to do. And I thought I'd be okay with that, you know, 
trying to make music a nine to five, but so this is Mike Copeland though talking a decade later, twelve years later after he's been in L.A. But when you first got there, you couldn't have thought that. I mean, I have to think Mike Copeland twelve years ago thought this is it. Boom! This is fun. <clears throat> I mean, where were you playing? Did you play at the? Did you ever play at the like the Viper Lounge? Oh yeah, yeah. We right. played the Viper. We played the whiskey. Right. We played so you're at the Viper Room. Uh, yeah, I mean, the <laughs> all the places that a musician would dream about you know right so at that time you can't be thinking this is horrible actually i was i was because when i left for la i was scared you know i didn't have any family out there i was going three thousand miles away from my home and uh, it's a typical story i mean every guy does this there's a thousand guys like this moving there every week where you show up with two dollars in your pocket and you're sleeping in the car um, I'm not an amazing person for that story. Everybody does that. You know, Mike probably did, Retouche probably did the same thing. I knew a hundred guys that did that, but that's how I did it too. I took my piece of shit truck. And by the time I got to Oklahoma, it blew up on the turnpike. I had to leave it there. I got a U-Haul. When I, when I got to LA, my dog got hit in, uh, New Mexico at a rest stop, broke its leg. So when I got to LA, I took it to the vet that set me back. Uh, actually the fucking super rich front man of our band loaned me five grand to pay for the dog. So I was, when I got there, I was $5,000 in debt, didn't have a car, didn't have any money. And I was sleeping on a couch with a bunch of assholes I hated in, in West Hollywood, where that's a, you know, a, not the best place in the world for a straight guy looking for chicks to move to, you know, that's the gay capital of the universe, which was fantastic because I wasn't looking to be in another hillbilly bar, you know, <laughs> coming from Athens. It was, it was an amazing and interesting and insightful change in my life but uh yeah it wasn't all i've made it i've hit the big time i was scared to death i had no money and uh all i had was a job which was my saving grace you know mm -hmm. so i focused on that work going to mark's tropical fish every day selling fish to celebrities well that's sweet yeah i was in studio city and i made i made more friends through there in the professional music world than i did with a demo because demos are hitting the front door of Capitol records like fucking well, you're always sending me pictures like look who i'm working with today look who yeah I'm working with today. yeah i met every celebrity you can imagine your through. fish store work your tropical fish store work seemed a lot more glamorous than your base absolutely work. was 100 percent. i mean all the celebrities that you can imagine i i fixed their fish tank at one point or another and uh, I started moonlighting as a tropical fish service guy doing the Deuce Bigelow thing. And I worked, I got a job at one point working for uh, Maite Garcia. She was married to Prince in the 90s. And uh, she wanted me to record some baseline on her belly dance fitness DVD. And so her boyfriend's dad was a engineer that worked in Randy Jackson's studio on Ventura Boulevard. So through my koi pond cleaning <laughs> job i end up in fucking randy jackson's studio recording my my demo as payment for laying bass lines on her dvd so she's got a dvd out there that's for fitness for women that want to do belly dancing as a fitness routine it's kind of an alternative thing it's cool and i do all the bass tracks on it are I got, you making any royalties off that or was that a no payment? i signed a contract she paid me a hundred bucks she gave me a puerto rican wedding cake which <laughs> i had eat ate a piece at her house one day and it was phenomenal it takes 12 sticks of butter to make one of those cakes it's so fucking rich it's unbelievable like two dozen eggs and i and, and i asked her i said you got to get me some more of that cake and so she said well here's the deal i need this recording done you know what can i what do you want to pay and i said i don't need you to pay me because she was a friend i actually liked her a lot as a friend she's a cool person i worked for her for about five years and we shared a lot you know she was a really fascinating person and uh 
so we agreed on a hundred bucks the cake and that they would allow me access to the studio to record my demo and which uh her boyfriend's dad engineered and produced and then randy jackson actually did some tweaking on it made a comment that uh you know he thought it was funky as hell i said shout out from randy jackson yeah um and that blew my mind actually um one thing that was kind of funny about that was that when he heard the CD, when he heard the demo, and um, you know his input on it was popped in a room, moved a fader two inches, and then left. You know, <laughs> and uh, I was there, and I said, "What? What did Randy say about this? Did he like it at all?" And I and I guess his comment was, "I heard the song all week playing in there, and you guys were making it. Didn't think that was going to be a white guy." <laughs> Which is, you know, I took that as a compliment. I think that's yeah. a compliment. But yeah, it's a bass player. That's that's universally definitely going to be taken as a compliment. <laughs> so you were going in and out. I mean, so you you got to LA. Um, so the fish job is more glamorous. First off, yeah. you get to LA and you're in this band who sends you this demo and you're like, sweet, uh, this sick ass band just sent me their demo. They want me in the band. They sound awesome. You get there. You find out their Pro Tools skills are better than their actual live band skills. So, <laughs> do you, well do you, put. Do you fly through, um, you know, some more bands? How long you're with them? Did you start hitting other people up um, out there? You know, was it as easy? You said in Athens, um, you know, you had community. You go to a new open jam. Suddenly, you got friends. You got people who want to call you. You know, you you wake up. Uh, drunk uh, one morning at, at, at 11 a.m. in some weird place on North Lancaster Street, and you meet a drummer, you know, or whatever. Yeah. How's that happening in L.A.? In L.A., it's different, um, but it's easy or easier. Uh, you get on Craigslist, you type in a band looking for bassists. You know, if you're, if you're a musician looking for a band, you're talking a city of 18 million people, you know. Um, I... Uh, type this in and I get 12,000, you know, different hits on that. I scroll through them and start whittling down to, you know, a few that I want to shout out to and see if what's up, meet the people, see if their music's real, this and that. And I went through a couple different groups. I mean, one guy was a cousin of a brother of a friend of a buddy that was in Fishbone. You know, his band was sick. You know, that's the thing about L.A. is that, you know, there's a lot of fucking amazing musicians there. Everybody's an amazing musician there. There's a lot of terrible ones that think they're amazing because it's the everybody gets a trophy. Mommy and Daddy said you're great, you know, and here's the money to move to L.A. So there's a lot of those out there, too. But, you know, it's easy to see just by talking to those people are. So I went through a couple of different uh, groups that I w tried to be the bassist of and just wasn't into it. And I said, fuck it, I'm going to assemble a band. So I made my own ad, you know, on Craigslist. This time code enforcement can't get me. And uh, I put together a band. I met a guy, Pascal Jacob, a Pakistani kid, fucking great guitar player. Uh, I had met a guy, Kurt, actually, through MySpace, as a drummer, because back then you could look through MySpace would ha would have musician want thing, ads, right? you know. It was, it was a thing. Yeah, and I met him. He was a great drummer, a very technical time oriented, and he could play to a click track, which is a must out there because a lot of people use sequencers. Uh, it's not so much vibing off, getting high, and jamming a song. There's not a lot of organic nature to uh, the performing music out there, especially because they want it 30 minute sets and this and that. But yeah, I put my own band together. We called it Stamina, spelled with a Y, tried to make it some sexy funk group, you know. <laughs> we had a guy, Laquan Brooks, on vocals, and uh, it was a good band. We played a lot of shows, but it 
really it got boring to me you know we played a lot of shows and we ended up losing kurt the drummer and uh i hated the other drummer and he hated me and it just kind of fizzled out it just didn't seem to be going when it became annoying to go to practice you know right. i'd be out surfing in malibu thinking fuck i gotta leave here to beat traffic to get to the practice place you know i gotta get two miles down the street to the rehearsal hall and i'm gonna have to leave three hours to get there and I and I started, you know, by this time I'm two years, three years deep into living in Southern California. I was immersed in the culture, the other things, you know, surfing, ocean fishing. My job, I had, you know, I had, I had thirty clients, and I'm and I had quit the fish store, and I had my own shit going on, and so I was doing other things. I mean, I'd always be sending pictures back of me fishing at mm-hmm. the Malibu Pier, this and that. People were like, right. "What you doing? What's up with music? All I see is sharks and fishing and shit." And I was like, yeah, "I don't care," you know. <laughs> But you were uh, you you did uh, record quite a bit. You were with quite a few bands. I know you were always sending me links of, of other bands you were in. We're gonna play uh, one of those demos that you recorded while you were out there in L.A. Uh, it was a it's a rendezvous. Is what it's let me let me let me explain that demo a little bit yeah. first. Okay, the core of that song is from a song that I actually recorded with Cirrus Effect, a band in Athens. Mm-hmm. And it was a piece that I had composed like in 1999, and I just really liked it. I played it in every band I was ever in, and um, I took that out there, and and that was what I gave initially to the guy at Randy Jackson Studio. I said, I want I want to put this song into the computer somehow because I'm not technical this way, right? I said, and I want to lay, I want to overdub some additional embellishments on the bass over it. So when someone asks me. Hey, you know, can you play bass? What's up? You want to play? You got a demo? I could give them this. And then we added some additional things onto it. But on the demo, I played drums. Uh, and there's some electronic drums in there too, but I played an acoustic drum kit on it. And the track was initially recorded live with me on drums, Brian Quinn, who's now a professional bassist in Chicago, excellent bass player. Green, Ryan Greenley on guitar, he's a little Athens local. Jim Jungle Jim Johansson on percussion, mm-hmm. which was recorded in a church up on... Pomeroy Road. Well, all this was recorded in a basement on Oxley Road here in Athens. I took that out there. Three high school kids that we snagged from Athens High. We forced them to play horns on this, offered them some weed and stuff. And uh, I, I put more bass on it, a different longer intro, a different longer outro. And uh, yeah, here it is. All right, Adventures of uh, Copeland. He's out there, tropical fish, surfing, playing some music everywhere. This is one of the demos he recorded out there. We're live on View from the Hill. We're going to take a little break and listen to this. We're going to come right back with Mike Copeland.
We're sitting there chilling with Mike Copeland on View From The Hill, www.viewfromthehill.com. I was a little piece of you, man. Man, you must be, I mean, you're kind of like a hip-hop live band's dream. I mean, I kind of always <laughs> Based on to, my looks, yeah. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I always wanted, I mean, on every project I've done, I'm like, we got to get Copeland on, on some bass on this. <coughs> That's my skill I mean, set. And that song right there really, too, yells... I mean, it's got a hip hop feel to it. You can you can hear it inside of it, and I mean, I I start. Yeah, uh, that's you know, that's that, where I'm at, man. That, with that. the with the groove and the beat and the funk, I like a simple hip hop. You know, four on the floor drum beat and a simple bass line. When I get wasted, I play all over the place. I'm known to get do that, but um, that was a, a strong era here. But yeah. Um, I go way back with the hip hop, and that's that was the start of me loving the bass guitar. Same with Scott Fisher, my soulmate on uh, Funk Brother on drums. You know, he had learned to play by playing the drum beats to Straight Outta Compton album, and ironically, that's one of the things that I learned all the bass from. So initially, my first CDs, uh, you know, and tapes and stuff that I was at home with trying to learn how to play bass was, uh, you know, I had a lot of records. I loved Fleetwood Mac at the time and uh, my parents' record collection, you know. Uh -huh. I'd play uh, everybody, every parent's record collection had Fleetwood Mac rumors. Peter Frampton, A Lot Comes Alive, uh, Up in Smoke, you know, Grease soundtrack. So I learned a lot of that stuff, which there was some sick bass in the Grease soundtrack. If you listen back. Yo, yo, yo. What's going on here? Keep talking. Check, check one, check. two. Check yeah, one, two. <laughs> That's something that you need if you get serious as a fucking generator. You know, in life, you should probably have one out here anyway. Or at least battery backup. Check one, two. This is all recording and it'll be in the replay. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> Someone tell us if you can hear what we're saying. Unless you're Ian. Ian, not need reply. Now the gun now, put me going down, they get hit, 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 hit. 
Apocalypse now, the gunpowder. Apocalypse now, the gunpowder. That's how it all started.
All right, guys, we are back. We had a little uh, power outage there that took us out, but we are now back online. Got back booted up. Sorry about that uh, little pause there. Hope there was uh, enough going on to, to keep you still Too engaged. Too much bullshit going on in here. With, that was uh, a bunch of bullshit. I'm calling Time Warner, and I am fucking complaining. I'm calling AEP. You've ruined my radio show. Yeah. You've ruined it. The fucking uh, power station was probably like, listen to this asshole talking himself up. <laughs> Jesus, just shut cut him, him off. They God. needed to shut us down. <laughs> Ian, Ian P. Berger, Stabmaster Arson in the house, just joined us now. Sick guitarist. He's listening. Incredible. Sick guitarist. That guy has a seven-string guitar. I mean, you know, if six isn't enough for him to... <laughs> show off to everyone he needs seven i've never played with somebody who switches guitars so much but that was kind of our fault because we'd like i think subconsciously maybe or drunkenly choose the order of our shows to play and to force him to have to change guitars constantly we never would put the I same guitar we've in written row. songs just so that he could switch guitars <laughs> and, you know um yeah you gotta love that guy oh man so we were talking before we were rudely cut off uh, by the power outage there. We were talking about your time in L.A. We played a little song uh, demo that you played out there. Uh, the Tropical Fish Life. You were you were selling tropical fish and hooking people up with some aquariums. That was actually, yeah. uh, that seemed like the, the things that I wanted to know about. I always wanted to see the pictures. But <laughs> what I want to focus on, too, is a story that I hear all the time, and it's about a band that you were in called Static Pulse, Oh, Jesus. And every time I... You talking about the birth of hip rock? <laughs> every time I listened to them, they were claiming <laughs> that they invented hip rock, hip hop and rock. Yeah. Almost as if they had never heard of Aerosmith and Run DMC. Well, the or, one or guy Beastie certainly Boys. never did. I mean, he, you know, he's the kind of guy who, when you ask him, you know, about music legends and who he greatest inspirations are, we're talking about... He's going to bring up uh, MC Hammer. <laughs> and you know, Hammer's good. Don't get me wrong. But, I mean, he's not going to bring up, you know, virtuoso rock and roll Hall of Fame legends. You know, and to all the Kanye lovers out there, sorry, but this guy was a Kanye person. He really, <laughs> and uh, like Little John, Little Wayne, that type of guy is who, who he was into. So he was a cocky a dickhead who really was not a good MC. Well, from someone who kept saying that they invented hip rock, hip hip hop rock, hip rock, whatever they were calling it, I was like, well, how did such a horrible MC invent this genre? Because I think he was probably the worst rapper I've ever he heard. Sucked. I've he heard sucked. a lot of bad rappers at the hip hop shop here in Athens. I mean, he, he sucked, but <laughs> we, you know, we heard he plenty was of bad MCs. Very typical of what you'll find in Los Angeles. You know, you've got a guy who is extremely confident, good-looking guy, and he has the uh, go-get-em nature to fucking get out there, beat the streets, make, you know, assemble a squad of people to make him look fucking great. And uh, he had that skill set. He was able to uh, hook up with a guitar player, and uh, this guy Tony, who was all from Ohio. And... Uh, was a hell of a producer, and uh, they put together some great music. It was actually some really some of the best music I've ever played. Some of the best produced, written, and executed music. There's some great musicians in the group, 
Um, but he was a shitty rapper, but he was a hell of a f performer and stage man. He made a show. And Los Angeles is not the who's the best musician business. It's the entertainment business. And, you know, people pay 30 fucking bucks to go to the whiskey. They don't want to see another 90-minute jam of Mustang Sally. They want to be entertained, <laughs> you know. And uh, he could do that. He was an entertaining guy. And, uh, you know, it didn't matter that he was a fucking prick of an individual. Uh and that the, uh, no one in the band got along. Everything know? always sounded so stripped down. You'd be like, yo, check out this new Static Pulse song. And I'd go check it out. And I'd be like, that's cool. Where's the, like, the bass line sounds like it was, it's a keyboard. Yeah, it Where was. I mean, they produced all their music and then they hired a band, you know. And it's a lot of groups are like them in many ways. You know, they had a, a, a well-produced demo and, and recordings that were made by, you know, by Tony, who was a producer. He'd use sequencers. Uh, digi digital bass lines, you know, drum loops and stuff like that. And they were trying to make pop, you know, top 10 radio million dollar hits. And, uh, but they wanted to have a stage show. So they got, you know, they basically pimped out, you know, uh, me and a few other people as their bitch ass musicians, <laughs> baiting us with dreams of, you know, glory. And we were on our way, dude. I mean, we played with Cypress Hill. We played with Snoop Dogg. We, I fucking, you know, smoked with Woody Harrelson, you know, it, uh, we played and POD, uh, fucking Dave Navarro, you know, came up to me and told me I was a fucking sick funk bass player one night. And, you know, those are moments that you dream about, you think might happen. And, you know, when that shit's happening, you think you're there doing it. And we were, we were doing good with that band, all floating on a cloud of their bullshit. Um, because if you tell people th something enough times, they're eventually going to believe it and think it's good. And that's what was going on with the hip rock thing. They're not that different than a lot of pompous, egotistical musicians who get themselves intertwined in their own bullshit and believe it. I think they believed it. So the most success you have out in LA in a band is with one of the fakest fucking bands. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's the majority of what's going on out there. You know, the few and far between, you know, can be creative and do their craft and get paid for it. But, you know, when you're when you're a backing bassist and you sign on, you know, to play for somebody else, that's what you're doing. You're doing somebody else's shit and realizing their vision. Right. And um, that's not the worst thing in the world to be doing because your hands are free of most obligations. You don't got to sell tickets. You don't got to write songs. You just got to show up and play. But, um, you know, it's helpful if you like the people that you're working with. You it's know? really helpful. Yeah. And those guys were cocksuckers. I didn't like them at all. That, and there's like no mystery. They know it. I quit the band and it actually folded. Well, when I was hearing you in that, you know, you were, that was kind of also the same time where you were starting to hit me up with the, like, I, I miss Athens, man. I miss Ohio. I'm coming back. You know, that was around the time when. It was all the bullshit where, like, you know, you'd say you're coming back, and then a year later you'd say I'm coming back, and yeah, then a year then later, you, then you come out and visit me, and I'd say I'm coming back. Yeah. <laughs> well, life was good for me there too. You know, I mean, I quit that band. I mean, we played every you know thing that you could do coming up, and I got to the point where I just didn't really care. You know, I being a professional musician and the aspirations of being a rock star and that kind of a thing. Just, you know, when I started out, I was 18. I'm fucking 38 at this point, you know, and my back hurts. I don't want to carry my equipment. I'm going to slip and break a hip and shit. And I just can't do the party and the, the playing out, you know, practicing six nights a week, playing the club till 4am. Are you the cliche now? Um, 
I don't know. I was many cliches, you know. Um, and I just it just got dumb. It was much easier for me to get up in the morning, go out and clean my fish tanks, talk to my customers. You know, I learned to speak some Armenian, Russian, Spanish, uh, Japanese, you know, all this stuff. Uh, meeting all these different people from different cultures, which is a great thing about L.A., and enjoying, I was finally able to get out there and enjoy the L.A. lifestyle in the West Coast and Southern California thing, you know. I started motorcycling. I met a bunch of celebrities through motorcycling. I started riding with, I fucking rode with Brad Pitt, Vince Neil, Billy Idol one day. Just us four out on the highway, dude. Four fucking guys on motorcycles. It was tits, you know. And that kind of thing happens to guys every day in L.A. Because that's who lives there. You, you work and live in Athens, you're going to meet the people that work here and hang out with them. And that's what goes on in L.A. and it's no big deal. Um, and actually a lot of these high profile celebrities are fascinated to hang out with a normal person because they live amongst people in a different universe than you and I and everybody else, you know, but you know, I, we, we had Suge Knight got involved with our band with Static Pulse and he fucking gave, you know, he had a hundred grand in a suitcase one night at whiskey and was in our, all, everybody in the band wanted us to sign on to his label. And I said, haven't you fucking heard of what happens with this guy, dude? You know? And and they were like, oh my God, this is our chance. You're going to fucking ruin it. And I said, he's going to give us a car. He's going to give us a house. I said, it's going to be all his shit in his name. And then he's going to fucking take it. Yeah, what, it's going to be know? all him. And, you know, Shamar Moore, he's a big time actor. He lent us his house to do a video with. We're hanging out with him. We're hanging out with all these people getting involved. And, in, you know, Shamar is a great guy, a good family man. But some of the other people, Kevin Federline, you know, and getting involved and seeing how big of a piece of shit they really are. Um, and the further up the ladder I went with people that I had aspired to be like, the more I realized that, you know, they weren't living lifestyles that were going to be good for me. You know, I like fishing. I like working on cars. I like being in the woods. And when you're a professional musician, that's your job in your life. It encompasses everything 24 seven. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a, being an entrepreneur selling your craft and it's a 24 seven job, just like any other small business. You know, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And so, I mean, so what started driving you then to like, I'm, I'm done. I've done the LA. I want to go back to Athens. I want to go back to Southeastern Ohio. I want to go back to my home. Well, when you initially asked me if I felt that I was really in the dream when I first got there and I was seeing and doing, you know, and being in Hollywood, you know, did I make it? And, and in my own mind, I, I, I was just sort of like, I took one trip down Santa Monica Boulevard, turned around, came back up sunset. And this was like at three in the morning on a uh, Saturday night. And I thought, well, Jesus, this is fucking dead. In Athens, there'd be people puking on the sidewalk, some guy selling weed at the corner, just a burrito buggy would be happening. There'd be something to do. <laughs> and it was fucking dead, you know? And, I, and another time, you know, my wife and I, when she had actually moved out there, you know, before we got married and I had uh, got her out there for the last year we lived there when we hooked up, we went to the Santa Monica Halloween party, which was supposed to be a big deal. And she's a modest person and sp speaks her mind. And I remember we had dressed up as Dog the Bounty Hunter and Beth, and we were walking down Santa Monica Boulevard. And I was like, eh, this ain't shit. We're, you know, I mean, Athens is the biggest party in the country, Halloween. And, and KTLA uh, had come up to us, the news channel, with the camera and the microphone, they said, Hey, where are you guys from? What do you think? What's going on? It's your first time at Brock Party. We were like, yeah, yeah. And, uh, what do you think? And I said, that's eh, okay. You know, whatever, you know? And, uh, 
They said, what do you think? What do you think? And my wife just looked at the camera and the guy and just goes, eh, you know. <laughs> and that was just another example of, you know, I wasn't impressed out there. I wasn't excited by the place. There were some things to be seen and done. And I had felt that I had done them. And I longed for <clears throat> other things that fulfilled my life that I didn't get to do anymore, which was, you know, all the things that made me the person I was in the prior 30 years before I moved out there. You know, mm -hmm. you can't do shit if you live in L.A. if you're a Midwestern person. You know, if you want to stay in an apartment and pay uh, 1800 bucks a month for it and go outside and see gang violence and, you know, a bunch of people that are there to do things for themselves and not make friends, it's a good place. The L.A. River didn't do it for you? Not at all. I did try fishing in it one day. I found it on a map and thought, fuck yeah, man, there's a river right downtown. <laughs> Bam, suited up, got my waders, walked up to the place. And the first thing I realized about the L.A. River is that I was standing where the scene where when... Arnold Schwarzenegger is being chased by a semi-truck in Terminator 2. <laughs> the semi blasts over the bridge and lands on the concrete basin of the L.A. River, which is a drainage cesspool filled with throwaway guns and syringes. And I was there to fish, and I went back to work and said, you motherfuckers, the guys at work told me to go there, you know. They said, you really did that? Jesus Christ, Mike, you are a dumbass. And I said, well, fuck. You know, there's a sign there by the bridge that goes over the L.A. River in Studio City, and it says Scenic uh, Waterway, and it has like a, blue heron standing next to some wildflowers, you know? You look down on the river and there's like a dead body and some fucking glow-in-the-dark chemicals going down towards Santa Monica. It's awful. So then you finally come back to Athens and you brought a family with you, right? Um, or have you been creating half a family? Half the family, yeah. yeah. Life's um, good? Well, you know, when you talk about longing for home and wanting to come back, you know, you know about three years out, there i had been there for seven uh three years into it i just didn't care anymore but well wind it back initially like i said when i got there i saw santa monica wasn't jumping hollywood wasn't as jumping as i thought it would be i did the parties i did I, I just felt immediately i was ready to go home but i was stuck there with no money and no car and so it took me seven years to get the fucking money in the vehicle in the foundation to get the hell out of there <laughs> but uh you know in the process i got my wife and everything else but yeah i mean i was dating a girl who <clears throat> it was a typical la relationship you know she wanted to live by herself pursue her career and i was kind of like feeling the pressure of being approaching 40 realizing i didn't want to rock all night anymore it wasn't what i wanted to do and i wanted to i wanted to have a family and a real relationship you know and i didn't want to build that in, in Los Angeles and raise my kid there. Not because it's bad or terrible, but it wasn't what all my life, you know, that's not what I saw or knew. And I didn't think my fatherhood skills were going to be applicable there in that environment. I don't know shit about raising a kid in LA school systems. You know, kids need a fucking bulletproof vest to go to public schools there. You want to send a kid to a school that's not dangerous? It costs $30,000 to send your kid to private school there, you know? And uh, I was making... Well, for tax purposes, I won't tell you what I was making, but uh, I was making fucking great money there, <laughs> and I had no reason to leave for, you know, I mean, I I, I basically became a poor dirtbag to move back to Ohio and left a fucking great business, sold that off, you know, because I wanted a different life, and uh, so the girl I was seeing, you know, we, I just, this isn't going anywhere, you know, I wanted to kind of take it up a notch and start pursuing family life, and uh it wasn't going to happen with that. It wasn't serious enough. It wasn't bad. It just wasn't serious. 
So uh, we parted ways, and uh, my wife, who was a girl that I was always had a twinkle in my eye for, you know, who I thought was way out of my league, and we were just kind of Facebook friends, you know, and we were close friends. Uh, she hit me up one day, and, you know, we had had a pretty really nice connection, you know, spiritually years before then and really saw something in each other. And uh, she got a hold of me. We had both, you know, became single at the same time. And she said, you know, what's up? You know, I said, what's up? You know, and I said, hey, why don't you come out here and hang out for a weekend or something? Let's hang out, you know. So she said, okay. I just threw it out there because I, you know, was hoping to reel her in, you know. <laughs> and she said, okay. I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do, you know. And so I made, I got my dry erase board out and made a, made a calendar for that week. You know, I called all my clients and said, I'm not working. You know, my dream girl's coming out here to visit me. And I lined up the most romantic week known to man, you know, to <laughs> try and wine and dine her and, and romanticize her with. And uh, I didn't know what was going to happen. Neither did she, you know, but it was something we were just going to try. And so I took her to a great Indian restaurant. We went out to Malibu Tide Pools. We went to the Malibu Pier and did the, you know, the romantic, uh, fucking, what is that thing called? The big spinning wheel. <laughs> the carousel. The carousel. The, the whatever that whatever is. That thing is. <laughs> you know, we got on that and we did all that good stuff. And at the end of the week, we were ready to get married and start a family. She moved back out there with me in six weeks. Uh, we lined up our escape plan. We worked hard. She worked the job at a kind of like a organic, holistic grocery store, you know. And of course, like, you know, you talk about meeting the celebs. She immediately uh, got met a bunch of celebrities. Uh, Norman from Seinfeld was a regular customer of hers out there. <laughs> the guy who played Beastmaster um, wanted to hire her to be his, like, wife's personal cook. I mean, that's what's the thing. It's easy to get into the scene out there. You move there you're going to meet those people and get in there. So if you want to create a good life, there's a lot of opportunity out there. But, you know, her and I like fishing the outdoors and all. you got to go 400 miles away from L.A. to catch a fish that doesn't have two heads and some other biological defect, you know. Well, collision. you did come. You did come quite a few miles back, and now now yeah. here back in the heartland. Yeah, we moved back, and um, here we are, you know. We, and it's been good? Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, we crash landed kind of in Lancaster, which is, right. what, 30 miles north, 45 miles mm -hmm. north of here. Because we couldn't find a goddamn thing reasonable to rent in Athens. And there's no jobs here. So you yeah, know, I love that OU. Right, yeah. Ohio University. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and um, our families are both from Lancaster. And uh, we thought, you know... We don't really know where we're going to live. It's halfway between Columbus. It's halfway between Athens. We were shooting for Athens because we both love it here. But um, realistically, you know, you've got to work and make money. So right. we, we found a cheap-ass place to rent in, in Lancaster. And uh, we initially were going to buy that thing on land contract, and we were going to, we were going that route. And then we decided, you know, we're going to realize Lancaster sucked pretty quickly. And so uh, we, you know, decided that we we're going to move down here. But in the process... You know, we got married, and we had a baby boy four months ago. Congratulations. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, everything's right on track, and it's it's been the most amazing, you know, couple years of my life. And uh, it exceeds all the dreams I had prior to this, the dreams of being a biologist, my dreams of playing the bass or being in a band or having a big, cool motorcycle, any of that shit. It's mind-blowing. Every day, it's something new and amazing, and 
um, you know, I'm glad I trusted my instincts and made the, made the choices I did because I will never look back and wish. And, and that's one of the reasons I moved to L.A. was because I was at that point in my life where I was like 30 at the time. And I was like, if it's now or never, dude, I'm getting too old. And the same thing happened when I wanted to get married and have a family. I was out there. I was climbing the ladder with music. I was fucking mingling with celebrities and making money playing music in all the best venues. And I thought, well, if I'm ever going to get married and have a good traditional lifestyle, I better fucking get it going. Absolutely. And that's what I did. Absolutely. No regrets. None. So when you came back here, I'm gonna uh I'm gonna bring it back in. I'm gonna bring it back into a little bit of the music thing and say, you know, when you did get back here, I'm sure you had to come back to Athens a little bit, visit some of the friends and did you see any Im- immediate noticeable changes? You know, you've been gone out in LA for about ten years almost. <sighs> how had the how had the music scene here changed? Had it changed? Yeah, it's different. I mean, it was changing before I left, and, you know, the world's a changing place, but, you know, 10 years is a long time. And, um, you know, I in Lancaster, I continued my tropical fish thing. I started a business out there. I did it for two years, and when we knew we wanted to have a baby and we're ready to do it, I, I sold the business off because it was like, you know so all-encompassing in my life had to be there seven days a week to work it and i sold the business off kept my service accounts fixing tanks on the side and uh, took a year off to get my wrist fixed which i fucked up in la which uh, was another thing and uh after that was done i picked this you know we were still trying driving back and forth to athens seeing houses viewing got a real estate real estate agent we're looking at places to buy here and uh it was just too hard to live there and try and, you know, get involved here. Mm-hmm. So I picked the job up at DP Dow. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty modest and humbling existence delivering calzones at 40, you know, but mm-hmm. it gets, it makes great killer money. And I get back in the scene. I'm talking to people every day. I'm driving around town. I see what houses pop up because in Athens, is a small network. You've got to be here in the loop to see what's going on or you're not, you're not going to get anything. Right. Um, and we were actually under contract with a house down here, so I took that job at DPDO. The contract fell through. I still got the job. But uh, in that time, I've reconnected with uh, different musicians that have also came back here um, because everybody comes back. Shout out to Mike Retution. <laughs> and uh, I read the paper, and I look online, and I've had you know my thoughts of playing in a band again, but... I've been saying, we should we do a live dysfunk thing, maybe? Oh, maybe yeah. Maybe? I mean, that we talked about that, and I'm down. And I still got the key, and Scott Fisher wants to play drums, and uh, right. another buddy of mine wants to do keys. So that's uh, that'll happen. <laughs> but uh, basically, the music scene, what I've seen change from my time is, is when I left here, you had the patchwork pants and dready kids and uh, your hard rock and punk guys at the Union and the Casa, you know guitars made of tofu and stuff um <laughs> you you know a tofu lot of guitars a lot of strong and vibrant representations of many types of music uh represented with different venues and different little micro scenes you uh-huh. know and uh once i've come back here you've got like one music venue you got the casa the union burnt down the fucking you know the skull has still plays but the skull's you know it's got a minuscule stage with an yeah, archaic not. sound system and I got that I, overhang thing, but they don't even know what the hell they're trying to do. There. Yeah. I mean, Jack Hughes, I heard, and I can't speak for Jack Hughes, so this isn't gospel. Um, 
I heard they may or may not have music. Retushin can chime in and say, I think they've got like a movable stage. We but, talked about that a little bit. I think they're going to, you know, they're going to do what's best best for them. But I don't think music yeah. is going to leave there at all. I think they know that. And that's what I'm getting at is that music was a staple and a very high regarded and upheld uh, tradition in Athens. And it, I think it's deep, been deprioritized by a lot of businesses who know that a jukebox will get more kids in the door than a live band. And as a, as a business, it's a hell of a lot easier to deal with a jukebox than five cocky, self-indulgent, arrogant, stoned musicians that may or may not create a lawsuit and are a fucking pain in the ass, you know? So from a business standpoint, I can see why that's changed. Um, but, you know, I still see all the same guys that I remember when I left that are here that are what make what made the Athens scene that I know what it is. You know, I still see Junebug and Catfish, Nate Bright, Myron Hart. They got the jazz thing happening at Tony's on Tuesday night, yeah, that's which I awesome. think is incredible. It's great. That was not happening before, and it's it's rad. Yeah. Um, there needs to be more of that, you know. But uh, I think it's going to turn around when the union comes back. I think there's going to be – that's going to inspire – you know, it's kind of like if you build it, they will come. If that place is here, it's going to spawn musicians to Definitely. form bands. Absolutely. And there's going to be a huge buzz, and people are going to be dying to get in there and play. It's going to be the – uh, the sought after place to play that had some, you know, street cred if you can play there. And people fight for that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, in Athens or in LA, people want fame and fortune. In LA, or I mean, in, in Athens, uh, you know, people want to play that joint and be respected as a musician. And, and uh, that kind of thing says something. That is the, I don't see that right now. You know, I see it as a low point personally in, in Athens as a music scene. And I think that's a cultural change worldwide, not an Athens thing. Um, because there's still all those micro scenes are here, but fuck, there's you know ninety percent less venues to yeah, play. Yeah, to show that. And a, lot of these, and a lot of you know, I I'm not sure what's going on with the younger musicians and stuff because I'm forty and I'm not in that loop. You know, I think <laughs> about my family and other shit. You know, I got to go to the dentist and get my ass fixed and other stuff like that. I'm not. I don't know. You know. Well, let's take that then. You're the old sage. So far, you know, we're on episode four. View from the hill. Uh, you're the, you're the wise. Isn't it five? I think th I think this is four. You would know. Continue. <laughs> okay. Um, the wise old man. Maybe this is five. I think we, we don't even know anymore. I think the internet said that it was episode five, and then it came on at three p.m., which neither <laughs> thing was right. <laughs> no one even knows anymore. <laughs> but as the wise as the as the wise sage now, the man. You know, do you do you have anything? I'm going to ask that question. What would you say? to the younger group, the younger generation of musicians coming around uh, trying to do their thing. You know, you've done the L.A. thing, the Athens thing. Is it all about fun? What would you say to them? I say follow your, follow your dreams and your heart and your instincts. I do. I say go out there and fuck up. Go out there and become famous. That's what I yeah. want to hear. I was going to say that's not very original here. Did you just say follow your dreams? Did you just answer my question as follow your dreams? It's... It's about as simple. I mean, there's a reason that's a cliched statement. You know, it's you should do that because you may not you may not achieve that dream. Um, you may you may achieve that dream. It's really hard to define a failure or success once you begin a journey like that because it takes a lot of turns, and uh, you know. 
as nerdy as it may seem, something that I really enjoy is the tropical fish hobby. I, I was thrown in, into a situation when I got my day job out there at Mark's Tropical Fish where I was building more saltwater you know, reef and coral tanks in a week than most guys in that industry would do in a lifetime. And um, that was incredible, amazing, and, and it made me the money. And um, so, you know, if, if a musician has a, a, a dream to become a professional musician and do the L.A. thing, I say go for it, you know, 100%. And just you got to work hard. You got to beat the street. And if you put the work in, you'll become a successful player out there. If you've got, you know, if you can play at all, you can do it because, you know, thousand kids a week are moving to LA with that dream and they're all good. They're better than me. They're better than you. They, they're better looking. They can party harder and longer. They're younger. They can fucking go out on the road for 367 days a year. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, they can do it better, longer and faster and smoother than you. And there, and there's better and better every day. Um, but that's not the point in LA. The point is, be in the right situation at the right time. It's not, it can be about who you know, but it's all, it's about timing, you know? Right. Um, so it, it's doable. And if you work hard enough, you can get into the technical field of it. You can get into the performance aspect of it. You just got to keep doing it. Um, anybody that goes out there, you know, 90% of the people, they go out there, they hit rock bottom in a year, they come home. That's part of the process. You know, you, you go out there and you work hard. If you do it long enough, you'll be successful at it. Right on. And now you feel like you've been successful. I think you're successful at what you're doing right now, man. That 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 kid of yours is <laughs> Yeah, special. I mean he's the greatest thing in the world. You know, guys say a lot of things and it's funny that, you know, you you got your guys in high school that got their girlfriend pregnant, you know, and, and they tell you, you know, you're eighteen and your buddy comes up to you and says, Man, it's the best thing in the world. Every day I come home and when I see the smile on that kid's face, it's the fucking best thing I've ever seen in my life. And you take a pull off the bong and, and sip your beer and you think to yourself, he's got to say that. He has to say that. He don't like it. He's got to say that because what else is he going to say? Is he going to say he fucking hates his kid? You know, <laughs> that's what you think as a young single fucking jerk off, you know, and you go out and do your shit, you know, but it's all true and you don't know it until you, you, you know it. Um, you know, when they, when they, when I was in the delivery room and my wife had our baby, and they put that kid in my arms. He was crying, you know, and each nurse had to hold it and wipe the stuff off and weigh him and do this and that. And he went around the room with each doctor. When they put him in my arms, he stopped crying. And, you know, I looked at him and he checked me out. And there was that connection that you hear about, you know, uh -huh. that is undefinable. And you literally feel the transmission of life switch into a different gear. And your fucking entire world and every priority and it changes in it. And it doesn't set your other stuff on the back burner. It doesn't, you know, deprioritize any of your hobbies in life. It just, you know, you, you enter a, a new realm of, of uh, human nature. And there's nothing that I would trade that for. You know, if that answers your question. <laughs> that absolutely does, man. That's <laughs> awesome to hear. Yeah. I'm really glad to have you guys back and have you guys back around. We're going to listen a little bit to some of your music that you made back when you were in Athens. Some of the times you say you love, you love making music with Cirrus Effect. That was one of the bands you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Uh, we're going to play a song, uh, Do You Want to Funk? Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, that Rendezvous song, the song that you kind of went out to L.A. and made the, the demo out of, we're going to hear the song that you did with them with Sears Effect, the Rendezvous also. And then, uh, you know, this has been a clusterfuck of a show. We had the power outage. Uh, people thought, what the hell is going on? We haven't really known what to do. We're trying to keep it together. After we come back and listen to Sears Effect, we're, we're going to come back and we're going to we're just going to talk. We're yeah. going to have fun. We're probably going to talk about our Grand Theft Audio All Star times. Nothing really in particular, and we're just going to shoot the shit. So let's uh, listen to a couple songs by Mike's man, Sears Effect. He did uh, in Athens. Where were these recorded? These were recorded in a basement on Oxley Road. I actually played drums in this band on um, Oxley Road after Soul Food. Uh, disbanded and I went through a few other incarnations of this and that I started fucking around on drums uh, for the hell of it just to learn more about music and I met up with Ryan Greenlee great local guitar player and um, I said man let's throw a band together let's do a funk thing and uh, he said well I do know a kick-ass bassist and right away my feathers got ruffled when I play bass you know (laughs) but I'm like oh fuck I'm playing drums you know maybe I can do it on drums I said bring this kid over let's see what happens so he brings Brian Quinn, uh, one of the best musicians I've ever met uh, from L.A. to here. Um, and he, we play for 30 seconds, and I'm like, that fucking kid's amazing. Killer bassist. Crush me in, in bass playing skills. He um, was amazing. Yeah. Is. He's a virtuoso, and there's a reason he's a professional musician now. That's what he does for a living in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He tours worldwide, and he's a teacher. And he should be. And... Uh, a typical of the kind of thing Athens County can produce, you know? Um, well, anyways, I played drums in this band. I laid down some scratch track vocals, which if you don't know what that means, they, they are to be removed when the real vocalist comes in <laughs> and sings those parts. But you lay down a track like this if a guy doesn't know the lyrics or it's a helpful technique. Um, but our uh, vocalist, for some reason, I don't know what the fuck happened. He didn't lay ever get to the point where he laid vocals on these particular tracks. So my vocals are still on there, <laughs> um, and it's I haven't I hadn't heard these tracks in 15 years until we talked about doing this show, and I found a CD and a pile of shit I had that said Serious Effect labels, and what they were were, were the printable labels for the adhesive you, things yeah. that fuck up people's CD players, <laughs> and these tracks were on there, and I was like, holy shit. You know, and I was like, yeah. So these are the only tracks I had left because my original demo from them is all scratched. Well, here they are then. We got two right now. We got Sears Effect, Do You Want to Funk? And we got Rendezvous. Copeland, his uh, main choice of weapons, the bass, but he's on drums on here and uh, tearing up those scratch vocals. Good. (laughs) We're on www.viewfromthehill.com, live view from the hill. I'm with Mike Copeland. We're going to come back after this one and we're just going to talk shit now. Um, I'm done learning about him. I just want to talk about some hilarious (laughs) stories that I remember. Have fun. Get another drink if you're still with us. View from the hill.
live with Mike Copeland, View from the Hill. We've been listening to some of his music from Soul Food, Cirrus Effect, there's some bands that he had while he's been in Athens playing. We listened to some demos he did while out in LA too. And uh, now we're just going to talk a little shit kind of. We've talked about all we wanted to, but I wanted to have this guy on the show too because I've had some hilarious times with him and some hilarious stories, especially with Grand Theft Audio All-Stars. While we were in that band together, it was ridiculous. Do you realize that Schwartz was underage? Yeah, yeah, I remember because of the lyrics. He wasn't 21 yet. I know, and we played every bar in Athens (laughs) immediately upon joining forces. Yeah, and he would even, in our song, he'd be like, I'm... underage and i'm still bringing my own yeah, or whatever, i'm you know? still underage but i'm bringing my own so he would say within the context of a song that i'm underage <laughs> and i'm bringing my own bringing- alcohol <laughs> to this bar you know and people would be clapping and i famous. mean that sets up the stage for how our shows would be anyway oh yeah i'm gonna fucking debacle we were good though we i don't know good. okay so i've got two favorites of mine i mean and all these you know i gotta say with um absolute just like put put a little sensor here or a warning I'm honestly, as much as you hear me laughing and having fun telling these stories, I promise you, everyone out there listening, I'm not trying to brag or talk about how awesome it was. It was fucking crazy fun, but it was fucking silly as shit. My two, I don't know what my two (laughs) favorite stories come down to. It's either the night where we got so wasted at the Blue Gator, arguing with the management there, (laughs) and you said... If this were a gay bar, we would have made a ton of money tonight. But you weren't meaning to say that. Yeah, I know. I was meaning to say if this wasn't a gay bar, right? <laughs> We've all we've talked about this over the years. <laughs> but what I did was... I don't know what actually what I meant at all. I think I knew what I wanted to express... Uh, and it just in yeah, you guys have busted my balls. Well, that that ties for my personal favorite night with also the night too where we all did duster on the stage at Casa live. Yeah, I was telling somebody that story. huffing duster. I was. What the fuck were we thinking? Well, first of all, duster. If you don't know, and I hope you don't, because you're probably not in a good place in life if you do know. Uh, but computer compressed air in a can. It's sort of like whippets. Yeah, you want to just you want to blow your computer off. Yeah, you know you want to get it. Yeah, we'd go to Walmart and get a case of that stuff and be like, "Yep, we got a lot of computer blown off today." Because <laughs> they were suspicious of that shit, you know. 
and, and <laughs> we need to blow off a lot of computers. They're like five days a week. You guys are buying a skin of this shit. What's going on, man? Anyway, um, yeah, you'd huff that stuff, and it's like doing nitrous oxide, except but for, opposite. Yeah, where your voice gets lower instead of higher. And it's not really the opposite. You get the wah 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 and mental destruction that happens. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Yeah, it's wild, man. We were into doing whatever. We were all we were all in extreme party phase of life. I mean, you were Mike Copeland on bass drum, right. AKA Dusty yeah. Huffer. Yeah, I mean, my stage name was Dusty Huffer. Dusty Huffer. <laughs> Grand Theft Audio began at a point where I think I had just got out of flux capacitor and was still wanting to play, you know, in Athens. Uh, it seemed like you weren't being that serious. You were just like, let's do something. Yeah, I just wanted to rock. <laughs> I didn't want to compose the next uh, greatest opus of Athens County, you know. I just wanted to rock and party. And I knew who to pick to do that. Um, you know, I knew you guys as good MCs, definitely ready to party hard. Oh, ready. I knew that uh, Ian was a fucking killer guitar player who that I would have to put no effort into whatsoever to have some really gratuitous over-the-top guitar playing you know I could just call him and he could come and just shred you know mm -hmm. over anything seven different guitars right um, and he liked to drink too I think that he left on purpose now because he left right as soon as I said we're gonna start talking about our old <laughs> his wife was probably listening he's right. like I better cancel this shit oh, out well, they're having difficulties again <laughs> yeah Power must have gone out static again. okay Meg let's leave <laughs> um, yeah in uh, Meg's awesome, by the way. She would always encourage him to party, oh. just as a disclaimer. Anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, I went into a basement over on West Washington, across from the old uh, West, what the fuck bar was that? Yeah, it's now I mean, the wine bar. Yeah, it's the winery. I mean, it was where yeah. we lived then. I have ended yeah. up living in that same building. Well, I was there to like get a bag of weed or something from somebody, and I, and I went in the basement, and Julian... Crazy Julian was jamming with Dave Klingenberg. And I need a sip of coffee for this story. <laughs> and he was good. Dave was tight. He was solid. Um, you know, and I knew he could do what I wanted to do. He had a real, like, Tommy Lee, you know, just rocking, you know, rock and roll on the beat style. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he also wasn't going to do anything too complex to get the song out of control. I knew I knew he wasn't going to be a jammy guy. You know, I knew he'd just lay the groove. No, that's not his thing. No, you know, and and uh, and he also had leather pants on and no shirt, which I was like, this motherfucker is bad. He's he's going to fit right. And a in. fucking lime green cowboy hat with yeah. fucking metal spikes in it. Yeah. And so you know, we talked. He liked motorcycles, getting wasted. Dave was Dave was at rock bottom at that point too, as well as me. And so we connected on many levels. And I said, dude, come out to my trailer on Peach Ridge. Let's jam, see what happens. I want to put something together. And, uh, you know, in Athens, when you know enough people, you can play your dick at an open stage. And they'll book shows for you and love you and clap, you know. So I knew, hey, if me and Dave can make a few songs, we can play some shows. And so we wrote, like, I doubt we wrote anything down. But we, you know, we seem to put together like four, memorize a couple songs yeah we put together like five or six good songs <laughs> and uh once we got to the point where they were the same each time we played them you know uh, i think we called you guys and you guys came over you already had lyrics to things that you just kind of threw on these you made up some shit you know to right. to some of the other new stuff boom boom yeah 
Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm never going to be clear on the on much of what went on with this band, but did we play a show ever without a guitar player? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that was how we started, was we started with Open Jams at Casa. Okay. Because if you don't remember, we were told that we were no longer allowed to play at Casa. I thought that was when we we had Ian and Jesse. No, no. That was still just me, you, Schwartz, and Dave. And we were just drum, bass, and MCs. Because I remember that particular show rocked. Now It It was awesome. We were too hardcore, though. Everyone, like, you know, we had all these people playing acoustic guitar, little open jams at Casa, like everyone would know, open stage at Casa. And then suddenly, this fucking just drunk four-piece of yeah. bass drums and two MCs. And we were fucking laying down some face-melting, real <coughs> real straight-up rock, dude. We I just... don't think Josh was doing booking then. No, I don't know who was doing what. But who... somebody came up to us after it was one Beaster. of our open stages. Yeah, it was Beaster, Beaster, I think, came up to us. It, it he was... was running the open stages, yeah. at least, and he said, no, guys, it, no, no it more. was It was midway through the show, and I remember what happened. I went back to the bathroom to take a leak, and Dave had a jar of moonshine, and I had a can of duster. And it had went from hiding those things from behind the amps uh, to openly hitting them. Just em hitting them. And singing through the microphone with the low voice because <laughs> of the duster. You know, we'd be like, hey, out there, what's up? You know, and, and laughing and giggling and stuff. And we were still rocking. I mean, that's the one thing I could do. Uh, one of my greatest talents of uh, music is I, I might not be able to walk in a straight line or even operate my... Uh, limbs very well, but I could fucking play music and rock. I won't remember it, you know, but I'll rock. Yeah, you were pretty good at hitting Duster and playing bass at the right. same time. Right, and, and that's what we were doing. And, and uh, we had a, a piss break or something. I went into the bathroom. Dave's in there. I'm in there. We're hitting a can of Duster and laughing. And uh, Chris Beaster comes in there, and he's like, man. And he's got a joint in his hand. <laughs> and he says, you guys need to, you know, turn it turn it back a notch. And I'm like, man, my amp's only on like eight. And he's like, no, I'm talking about... You know, you're openly doing moonshine and sucking down uh, air duster on stage and, and all this stuff. He's like, no, man, no, 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 no. You know, a lot of people would have thought to themselves, okay, here's a guy who's yelling at us about doing, you know, being too open with drug abuse and, and being too outlandish while smoking a joint. He probably is correct, you know, if he's there and telling us that. But, you know, we went back out there and fucking just made asses out of ourselves and rocked out. And I think they politely asked us not to come back, maybe? I'm, I feel like we played there again with Jesse and Stab. So eventually point, we came back Well, when we were a little bit more rounded. They allowed us to come back, but not for an open stage. Oh, that's we played a show. You that's know, right. it was yeah. like, no, no open stages. But you guys, you've added keys, you've added guitars, so you're an actual band now. You're not just two kids yelling into a microphone over yeah. drum and bass. Yeah. You can come back for a show. And I mean, I think we were playing with like Black, Black Spiral Dancer. Back yeah, then, we hooked you know? up with uh, that was Maj, one of our, Yeah, uh, that was one Mike. of our regulars. Mm-hmm. They yeah. were the ones who could get us in. You know, they'd book the gigs, yeah. and then they'd be like, "Oh, by the way, Grand Theft Auto is opening." <laughs> I know, like thirty seconds before we'd start loading up on stage, they'd be like, "By the way, the uh, closer <laughs> is GTAA." People'd be like, "Oh my god!" Like, Shit. put the storm shutters up, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, this conversation, while you're telling me what happened, the things I actually do, reminds me of, you know, songs that we wrote, like, I can remember... The uh, names of them, Turds Diddy. I know, Trunk Monkey. I can remember doing Trunk Trunk Monkey Monkey. one time, and uh, 
it was a song that we wrote, but you announced that we had just learned this one tonight. Yeah. And which was true because we had to learn our own material because like we didn't know it. It was like it was a new thing every time, which was kind of a great nuance of GTAA. It was like a new thing to me and the every audience time. every time. No song was ever the same twice. <laughs> Never. Sometimes we played them correctly. Sometime. Well, we didn't practice because we got in fights, so we just decided yeah. let's not practice because we hate each other when we practice. <laughs> Yeah, because I don't even know what, but there was a point where, I mean, we we played a lot, and it was a pretty hard-working band. We played a ton. There was a point where we were playing, I mean, at least almost every weekend. Almost every weekend. Every weekend. We Fuck were yeah. overplaying. Definitely. I mean, in a town like this that's, you know, has one street with five venues on it, and we're playing five venues and two parties, you know, in a month. Sometimes we're doing, you know, we'd get in that trouble with double booking and stuff. Because right. we'd play a Hoolies uh, Tuesday. I think we played like Casa at 10 and a Hoolies at midnight or something one night, you know. Somehow we ended up in two venues. And I can't remember if we got <laughs> kicked out of one. And move it around. Frank lent us a PA. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Shout out to Frank. Uh, <laughs> over at Blue over Eagle. Over at the Blue Eagle. Always there to support a local band, no matter how uh, dirtbags they were. Yeah, Frank, one of the best guys in Athens, for yeah, sure. Doesn't get better. Blue Eagle, rock on. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I was watching a Guns N' Roses uh, documentary on Hulu the other night, and it was produced in England, so it was like, you know, they didn't have a, a an attachment to Guns N' Roses like an American production crew would be. Right. So they were like, these disgusting bastards <laughs> began playing in the whiskey, you know, and, and, I, and I looked at my wife, I was like, you know, this is kind of like GTAA was, because we were, you know... Of all the bands I've been in, when you think about rock and roll, you know, and just hard rocking and partying and the ch chicks and the drug abuse and all the cliched bullshit that goes along with what people think about, you know, even though we were pretty technical and tight, uh, hip hop, funk, hard rock band, um, it a was consortium. a consortium. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a great band in, in many aspects, but it was a rolling fucking amusement park disaster of emotional breakdowns and drug use and <coughs> relationship breakups and get togethers and just, I mean, it, it was everything that I had ever thought was going to happen in LA. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a point I think that you have to ask yourself as a band when you're in a bar like Poppers performing. And you're finding yourself playing Sweet Home Alabama, mm -hmm. but having your MCs <laughs> substitute the lyrics with the most horrendous Chauncey Rudders, just horrible. I mean, we were. Yeah, I think they were like having a domestic dispute, which we interpreted as a song. There was, yeah, there yeah. were. There. Well, there were there were two there were two like sixty year old women there saying, "Play Freebird." Yeah, play Sweet Home Alabama. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we did, but we substituted the lyrics with the most raunchy lyrics yes. you could imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got to be kind of looking at yourself saying, what are we doing? It was a low-class affair. I but mean, we didn't. Instead, we took the high road and we got in a fight on stage <laughs> and, kicked out, and kicked out instead. I know. We took the high road, so I uh, verbally insulted uh, Ian and <laughs> I pushed him and did something else and... He used a lot of restraint that there were, night. There were hands done. There, yeah. were, there were hands. You he, were out of control. Ian walked out back and cooled off. He should have killed me. Well, I'm and, pretty sure that you were out back for a minute kind of like challenging. Like Ian was at the bar drinking. You were out back. 
Yeah. And I think there were people going back and forth being like, yo, Ian, Mike's out back saying, come out, he wants to fight you. Yeah, <laughs> it was stupid. And, and that was like seven minutes after they had pulled the plug on us. I mean, literally, yeah, yeah. in the middle of a song, in yeah. the middle of Sweet Home Alabama, <laughs> I fucked your mother in the asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Boom, they're pulling the plug. They're like, we're done. Yeah, and Ian was frustrated because at the time, you know, here's Ian who's, you know, got like seven degrees, an ex-military vet, a fucking solid guy who's playing with this basket case group of jackasses just so he can have the opportunity to play guitar. Uh, he's tuned back in, by the way, so you can feel free to talk shit to him. He's I love that guy. Listening. I love that guy. <laughs> um, you know, and he's uh, tolerating us so that he can try to enjoy music, you know. He's starting to date his girl Megan, and she's showing up, and and he'd like to, you know, show his skills off and stuff. And what's happening? The fucking his buddies, his buddies, the guys he's chosen to be friends with in her mind, to hang around and associate with, are talking about anal dildos and your mom, bullshit, getting wasted, doing drugs and all that. And, and he get really frustrated with us. I bet. Know? And uh, you gotta wonder. I mean, did he he drank a lot too. He didn't like to drink. Was he doing it to tolerate us? Did we be, drive him to drink a little bit? Uh, Might have been. You know. I don't even, you take it back on the Ian tip, uh, I was living out in Vinton County at one point when I was working with the EPA, and I, I, my house was like a research station doing some aquatic uh, ecology research on Raccoon Creek, looking at pollution, acid mine drainage and stuff, and uh, some fucking how, oh, I was working maybe at Ruby Tuesdays, I think I met uh, this guy, Crancy, Ian, chime in here. Uh, tell me how this happened. I don't know. But uh, I ended up playing with these guys off of Route 50. Um, and Ian knew him. He, Ian was the guitar player, one of two. He was, you know, in the band. And we were doing like some Rage covers, some Pumpkins tunes. We did uh, Yellow, Lead Better, uh, Pearl Jam. We did some. Uh, who are those Armenian guys? They've got that fucking hard rocking band. They're sick. The one guy talks fast and raps. I, Jeez, I'll, I'll think about it later. What are you talking about? Um, and we did, you know, we were kind of like that, like a party cover, man. And the guys were good. Crancy was a killer drummer. The singer was good. And Ian was fucking great. There was another guitar player, Daniel, who Ian was borderline going to kill every show because he was semi-retarded, I think, or something. Uh, don't mean to be offensive there, but this is about the only description accurately I can give the guy. Something was wrong with him. Anyway... Ian couldn't take it. They almost went fucking toe-to-toe every show. And eventually, Ian and I both said, fuck this shit. So when GTAA um, began to form, once we had the core down, you, me, Schwartz, and Dave, uh, I called Ian and mm-hmm. said, you know, just show up, dude. Just bring your guitar. I want you to rip a shred and solo over each song. I'll tell you what notes they might be in. And... Uh, that's what he did you know oh he did he'd just come and rip it and god loved the guy i mean he put up with us for what two years and several christmas shows several i mean how many do we have i think there were five five i was maybe more six or seven maybe more there were quite a few i mean maybe we, i'm way off we played for years even after i moved to la i looked when i was in la you know i'd be standing in on the fucking deck of the stage at the whiskey you know jim morrison was there janice joplin was there fucking Jimi hendrix played there uh, Guns N' Roses, you know, they broke the muse, LA music scene in half on that stage. I was standing right there. You know what I was thinking about? I miss playing with Grand Theft Audio. You know, those guys are my fucking brothers. We never rocked harder. This shit is for bitch-ass fools out here trying to get a hit, you know, and to compete with American Idol. You know? <laughs> Where the hell you at, Ian? Chime in. 
He's not talking out there. I think he's listening probably cracking up right now. Uh, he's probably wasted at this point. I know he's been at the bar listening for a while. I wit, you know, I But wit. he talks more when he's drunk. I loved having him around as a guitar player, not just because he would shred it and rip it, but because, like you were saying, Meg was around, and we got some fucking awesome pictures all the time. Yeah, she took some, and you know, and she went on to, she's got her own thing going on with photography now, she's good, she's got an eye for that. Um, she has her own photography company of some sort there in Chicago, where she's doing baby pictures, family pictures, I think she works with some real estate companies, doing layouts of houses, you know, and they update that to Zillow or whatever, something like that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Ian was a hell of a musician, a virtuoso guitar player. Uh, couldn't have been a better fit for GTAA. Dave, you know, we all fit the bill. You know, bands come together, and, and that's what I was getting at uh, uh, on another note with the with the Guns N' Roses uh, documentary I was watching. They were talking about Steven Adler, the original drummer for Guns N' Roses, and how he wasn't necessarily the world's greatest drummer. But they said, you know, Guns N' Roses would have never been who they were without the guys that were in the band. Now, I'm not going to compare GTAA to Guns N' Roses in a musical sense. <laughs> but uh, as guys and the connection and the chemistry between players in a band, that's what I felt we had uh, with who we had. And, you know, they said, you know, Neil Peart, obviously better than Steven Adler. The second drummer, Matt Sorum, with, G with uh, Guns N' Roses, was way better than Steven Adler. But they were never the Guns N' Roses of Appetite for Destruction right. after they broke up and rebanded with with different guys. And uh, it was the same thing with Grand Theft Audio. Every person in the band uh, could was not really replaceable. And we learned that real easily with uh, Jason. Now, no disrespect to Jason. He was a slamming guitar player. We loved him. But it was never the same without yeah, the core group. Yeah, it wasn't with Ian. And, you know, um, Dave and his There person. was a time where we were talking about replacing Dave, too, right? On yeah, drums. I mean, there's a lot about that that I can't even say on air legally. <laughs> uh, you know, but through his... I'll just put it this way. Through his... We thought we needed to give him an intervention. And this yeah. you may not know. And it was due to some of his uh, embellishments in life were interfering with the success of the band. But Dave was paying my rent, let's just say. And I had to be part of the uh, intervention, which was really awkward. Because he looked, because we're like, we're going to have to, you're going to have to take a break, dude, until you clean up. And he looked at me like, what, motherfucker? I'm paying I'm you rent. I can't do this shit from you. <laughs> and I was kind of like giving him one of the cutthroat signs, like, shh, you know, we'll talk about it later, yeah. you know. You're supplying me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which was awful did you ever know that i think you probably knew that but yeah, it's uh pretty obvious yeah i mean what happened didn't we try a couple guys out and it was like fuck this man we need dave yeah you had some i think i i mean i think we tried out aaron michael butler i don't even know who that is so he's this amazing <laughs> amazing drummer that's yeah. like way too good for was that GTA. the thing we tried out off of bean hollow that day it might have been well there was another guy too i think that was a bean hollow but there were a couple drummers <laughs> that we checked out because dave goes to north carolina and we say what the fuck dave yeah he just vanished your second life your your embellished life your yeah your crazy life's taken over the band and he just vanished. Yeah. And we we're like, you're out of the band. Yeah. And then he shows up and says, why? I went to North Carolina and got you all this <laughs> awesome equipment. 
yeah, that's right. And we were like, well, yeah, he had like a PA or something. Yeah, right? he had like a PA, microphones, tons of yeah, stuff. Yeah, he's like, look, guys, I got all this shit. It was like Christmas morning, and we had kicked him out of the band. <laughs> and we were kind of all looking at each other like, uh, okay, should, should we... what did we do? I don't even remember. Did we? Did Was Dave ever out of the band? I think for like a three-week period. Or was period, it only it when was. he was in Florida and he didn't know? It was just when he was gone. So he didn't know he was out of the band. <laughs> right. That was a good. That was a good segue back into the band for him then. Yeah, we were all practicing <laughs> without him for a couple weeks. He but it was sucked. Out of the band. I mean, I don't have any anything memorable from that time. I didn't even know the name of the drummer. I don't think we that. played a show without him. No, because it just wasn't good. No, and it it would have never been what it was supposed to be without Dave. We wouldn't get kicked out. No. The craziest thing was Dave was supposed to be our wild card, I felt like. Like, Dave was supposed to be the crazy one. Yeah. But really, he was the least crazy out he of anyone. He really anyone. was. Dave was really focused on that, you know, because of the one thing, you know, Dave didn't have an easy life. And uh, somehow he managed to hang on to a drum set. And it was about all he had, you know. And I think probably the only consistent thing in his life was the band. He was living in a basement under, uh, under Chris Clark's house. Fucked up all day, every day. Right. And, uh, you know, but he was always there for practice. He never had a car. He'd borrow people's motorcycles Dude, he was always and cars. there for everyone. Um, and, you know, he you could always count on Dave. Um, and he loved the band. It, and, and to this day, I mean, he, he gave me the poster. He's got the scrapbook. I mean, he remembers all the... <laughs> and for mad. some reason, the most dependable dude, he goes to Florida <laughs> forever, whatever, for two weeks. And we're like, you're out of the band. Yeah, that just proves how dumb we were. But, you know... I got to give it to Dave because of all the people and shitbags that I've ever associated with in my life, he was one of the top of the worst, you know, (laughs) and Friday last week was his 10 year anniversary of sobriety. Um, He went on to clean up, went to school down in Florida for his motorcycle mechanics degree. He graduated with straight fucking A's, and he's back here working two jobs, one of which is a mechanic at a motorcycle shop. And um, he he's one of those people that had fucking two feet in the grave, man. He was there clinging on with his fingernails, really, you know, trying to die while everyone else was, like, trying to help him. And, and um, he, he 100% turned around. 100%. Trying to give it up to him. Turd Ferguson rules from Ian Berger out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you got a favorite show at all? I mean, I there was a show even where I remember. So I remember a show where we had a show at the Gator. And I was pumped up to play it. Um, and the next thing I knew, I was taking my head out of a kiddie pool on West State Street. <laughs> and... It was 3.30 in the morning, and we had already played a show, and I had no clue. I remember that show. That might have been the show that I said that I wish that uh, the place had been a gay bar. I think that was the night. Um, Because that same night, I left my pedal board out on Court Street, and uh, Ian was mad and went home and wouldn't take my phone calls, and there was that... Girl Alex that we that was hanging around the band for a while, and she had a fur coat. I remember her. I ended up with that coat, no shirt, and that coat on that <laughs> night playing. 
and I tried to do a stage dive. The lights, the house lighting at the Blue Gator was really bright when they turned those white lights on, uh-huh. and those fuckers were on real bright. So I couldn't, you couldn't see who was in the crowd. You were just totally blinded by it. And of course, in my mind, we were fucking playing at the Meadowlands. You know, mm-hmm. I had enough drinks to where I was in the fucking rainbow. I was in Madison Square Garden Word. every time we performed. Yeah, and I took a stage dive, and there was like six people in the audience, all of which were sitting sixty meters back, in, you know, in the fucking. Uh, bar stools, and I face planted in the ground hard. Uh, I remember that show. I don't know what happened to you there, but I remember that's the one where you know they drug me out the door with me screaming about the bar. I think. That was, oh, I, I don't know what happened to me there. I'm telling you, I literally woke up removing my head from a kiddie pool in the middle of a party. I mean, there were <laughs> other people there. I had no idea where we were at. I was like somewhere on West State Street. I'm surrounded by people who are like looking at me and yelling at me. Whatever happened? And I'm to- going. We got to get to the show. We got to <laughs> get to the show. And it's three thirty a.m. We've already played the show. That whatever happened there. I know that the next day that I I came back, the bar actually had my. I think either Ian or the bar had my pedal board, but my. I either left the wallet or money or some other shit there. And, and, and the deal that I had to make with uh, the bar in order to get my stuff back was to give an apology and pay $160 for the bar tab that I think was racked up between, you know, probably just... I don't, well, the Blue Gator and their fucking bar tabs came back to hit us quite a bit because they yeah. would always treat us like kings, too. Yeah. And we got we got duped in it a couple times, and they'd say, here, yeah. come have a great dinner. Yeah, yeah. And we'd order dinner and eat dinner at the Blue Gator. Having a good time. Yeah. yeah, and then we'd play a show, and they Bam. Say, well, you bill. brought in about three hundred dollars at the door. Yeah, you ate two hundred dollars. Two hundred dollars, and you drank four hundred. <laughs> right <laughs> after a show, they'd say, "You owe us three hundred and twenty dollars." Yeah. yeah, that was old Sheckman. He was good at that kind of thing. <laughs> On bass drum, Mike Copeland. That's true. The, probably the, the, one of the only recordings we had. Ian just throw that out there. One of the only recordings that we have too. <laughs> I mean, I got so lit during shows, I announced Copeland, who's playing bass, and we have Mike Copeland on bass drum. Yeah. So we had Turd Ferguson, what, playing snare? Yeah, snare. Oh, by the way, yeah. these are all of our uh, uh, our pseudonyms, our AKs. Stage so we had, names. We had Dusty Huffer. Also known as Squincy Jonesen. Squincy Jonesen. We had Turd Ferguson, Dave on drums, right? Yep. We had Ian on guitar, Stabmaster Stab Arson. Arson. Yeah. Um, we had Schwartz actually took one too. Tom Cruisen. Whiskey Business also. And Whiskey uh, came Business. Came up at that time. I think I was the only asshole who never took no, one. No, you had the High Angel came. Yeah, that was stupid. That was my whole thing though for a long time. Yeah, but it was a pseudonym that you owned at the time. <laughs> it was did. used. It was used. Because I, I remember Angel. Schwartz saying it to you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hidden in Lyrics. When did that come about? More recent. That was, that, was more, that was more recent, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, memorable shows for me. You know, I'm always going to remember the Christmas debacles back at... One thing I do remember that uh, no one else seems to remember <laughs> it was uh, one of our Christmas shows. I remember something ridiculous happened, and, and uh, we were going around the horn with the band doing solos. You know, now uh-huh. it's Mike Copeland on bass. I start thumping out a bass solo, and uh, I got on a mic, and I started screaming, Moonville Tunnel. Moonville Tunnel, and uh, it like 
devolved into show us your tits i think and like i could see megan's eyes rolling in disgust with me and ian just looking at me like what a fucking piece of shit you know and then somebody some asshole stepped or spilled a beer or something on ian's pedal board on the pedal i think board. he kicked him in the face something happened. he fucking he did pissed. something violent to that kid and i remember the kid was like scared shit was that at gator too no no that was at the union and ian was really livid about it man i mean it was like a whole thing where he had to be calmed down and he needed a bucket of uh, beer or something. I remember he had to have to calm him down. <laughs> <laughs> he would. He'd get those buckets of beer. Just like, give me the bucket and he'd leave. <laughs> he was such a fucking caged animal, man. He was always one sip away from the fucking slaughter. Of, you know, Ian, I love He that always guy. said something to us, to me and Schwartz, that it's, I mean, it was true, <laughs> but it would always piss me off deep down. It was so true. He'd say, look. I'd say, I'd say after the show, man, that was a wild show. That was a shit show, wasn't it? And he'd say, hey, I build the house. The house is perfect. Just because you and Schwartz paint it like shit doesn't mean it was a bad show. <laughs> that sounds like an Ian I built there. a beautiful house. <laughs> You guys painted it like shit, maybe. But. That tells me right away, because I've never heard that statement from him. And, he used to always say that to us. He doesn't pull any punches, and he's real direct about shit. So if he went that far to make some kind of analogy like that, then he was not happy with you guys. <laughs> you well, know? I mean, it was pretty easy to not be happy with us at all. when. Well, we called you Dumb and Dumber. Me and uh, <laughs> me and uh, Dave always did. I don't know if you ever knew that, because sometimes we'd be not happy either. But we kind of look at each other and just shrug our shoulders, like. Well, I mean, at least like at least you guys. So we never practiced, but you guys would get one time. You said that. you said that a couple times, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you guys would at least get down, you know, like the day of and practice. And me and Schwartz, yeah. more often, me would be the guy that'd be like, I'll just be there later. I'll be there. Yeah, the show. You, and you, you would do that. You, and so, the, of course, you guys be pissed at us because a lot of our lyrics consisted of yeah yeah i mean we never really you know <laughs> there were certain a lot of songs we knew pretty tight and nailed real well a lot of them we never knew to this day i don't know trunk monkey um to, you know and we fucking performed that song a hundred times and sometimes we really nailed it out of statistical uh inevitability you know and uh, other re other times it totaled terrible but it was you know it didn't matter because the performance was always super hype and exciting and the people that loved us that's what they wanted to see they wanted to see a, a total chaos you yeah know? and it was and, every time and they were music fans so absolutely the 13 people that did stay and watch us did want to see that shit. <laughs> exactly but you know there were shows where we packed the house i mean i can remember several of the christmas things where people were from front to back in, in the show and uh you know that night that we did the whole moonville tunnel uh thing um, was one of those. Another one was when I brought back that orange BC Rich bass that had they made for me out in LA, and I was getting some some like mediocre endorsements. I was on the uh, Yorkville and Trainer amplifiers were endorsing me. I was getting free strings from Guitar Center. I was getting guitar straps from a small company out there, and I convinced the store to hook me up. Uh, or a band, the band Ghost, they bought me that uh, BC Rich bass in this store out in the valley, painted it for me, and threw all new pickups in it as an endorsement for the store. And I brought that fucker back here and showed it off and rocked the house, and it was, uh, that show was great. I I played one of my best bass solos ever at that show. And I can remember looking back and seeing Colin Beach, who was 
uh, longtime sound man and staple of the music scene here. He recorded the songs that were on the Soul Food demo for us, and uh, you know, 10, 15 years prior to that. And he was there, and uh, I think he was living in Oakland at the time, actually, because he got out of Athens for a while and went to California. And uh, he had fixed my brakes on my car once and uh, helped me cut, use his table saw to make part of my pedal board that I took to LA. And I asked him what he thought about that bass, and he goes, yeah, I don't know about that thing, but you sure as hell can't play that motherfucker. You know, and, and that meant more to me than David Navarro when he told me that I could play the f fucking hell out of the bass. Because, you know, whatever attachment I have to Athens County and coming up as a musician, that just stuck with me more. And, and, and you know, I know I'm fucking good at the bass. So is everybody else in LA that's at, uh, playing at the fucking Viper Room. So Dave Navarro doesn't need to tell me that for me to know that. It was awesome. It was a great rock and roll moment. I'll never forget it. But it meant more to me uh, having Cullen say that to me because he saw me play at the very first show I ever played in Athens. It was with a band called Red Warning Blue was sort of a alternative yeah they made it up eric hall my buddy was in that band they ended up i got to watch him on letterman they ended up yeah. doing some some big stuff they they're still playing today yeah and that's and goes back to what i say if you keep doing it you'll end up doing it forever you know and and as a job but uh he uh i, I came down here they called me in a pinch their bass player was stuck in florida all the guys were from lancaster where i'm was at the time growing up you know right out of high school they said yo can you fill in and play the show with us in athens i didn't know about athens i said all right cool so they came down there and picked me up and we played the music on a tape deck you know the car stereo all the way back to athens and i learned the music that way we fucking straight pulled up in front of the union and loaded in and i played the show and i was nervous they pulled the fucking you know we turned around they flipped the lights on and i heard somebody go that's mikey copeland <laughs> and it was renee warner a girl from lancaster high school that was going to ou down there you know we were all like 19 18 or whatever and i was so nervous man and i don't think i looked at the crowd once and i, I had ibanez sr 500 i played the show i was super critical of myself i thought i failed horribly they won the battle of the bands and uh, I had been telling Colin that I was nervous and I didn't know anything about hooking my, my instrument up to a live PA at a venue. I had been used to playing in my bedroom through a stereo, you know. I didn't even own a bass amp. And uh, I said, I don't know what to do. you got to help me out. I'm really sorry. I don't know how to plug my shit into this. And he did it all for me. And he patted me on the back and said, I'll take care of you, man. You'll be all right. And at the end of the show... He came right up to me and unplugged all my shit and said, man, you did a great job. Fantastic job, buddy. You know, And so you know, later down the road, after coming back from L.A. and being you know, a good bassist, um, he kind of gave me props that night. And I was like, all right. You know, it's one of those full circle validation things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, it's been a pleasure sitting here talking with you. I knew we wouldn't have a, a hard time finding something to talk about. Everybody out there listening, sorry we had the power outage here. Some uh, problems going on down here on East State Street here in Athens, but I'm glad you stuck with us. We had uh, we had a fun time talking. I'm, yeah. I'm glad I got to talk to you, man. That was good, good stuff. Thank you. Glad to have you back. Um, glad you took uh, everything you learned out in L.A. and had a good time and brought it back here to Athens, man, because it's, it's uh, fun getting to see you a lot more now. Hell yeah. It feels good. We're going to take us out now with uh, some more songs. We got this uh, song. It, it, it just has a, a little name here on this track mmtwgr for oh, serious yeah. effect can you explain that 
That was a song called Music Makes the World Go Around, which Madonna later stole the title of that from me, uh, for her song. But I actually wrote that shit before she did. I wrote it in a house I was living in in Chansey. I had a mattress, and that was it. And uh, all I could think about was how music, you know, no matter what's going on in the world, music kind of puts people on a level playing field, you know. People, mm. people all, everybody, no matter where you're from, can enjoy a good song. It doesn't even matter what language it's in. And that was kind of the vibe I was thinking about, and uh, that's what the song was about. The lyrics are are about that. It's pretty clear, and it's a it's a great funk tune. Awesome, man. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. We're gonna take us out with some serious effect. Music makes the world go round, and then we're also gonna listen to. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't put one that had the lyrics in it, but we're gonna listen to some <laughs> Grand Theft Audio All Stars. You know, with our amazing way of coming up with names for songs, I think this one was in the key of D, so it's called the D cut. Yeah, and I can always remember having to ask Ian what the hell key this was in. What key is D cut in? I, I, I we'd start to play, and I'd be like, "What key is this one in? What key is this one in?" Because I know always know the songs, but never. Rem- and every song was in E. That made it simple for us, <laughs> except for this one and the other one, which we called C cut. The C cut. But I'd still have to ask, and Ian would just give me this look of total frustration, like his head Disgust. was going to explode. And then Dave, the drummer of all people that knows nothing about scales, would He'd be like. Know. It's C, motherfucker. Think about the name of the song. Yeah. Well, we've had fun, man. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is View from the Hill, www.viewfromthehill.com. Listen to us two weeks from now. We're going to get live with Dutch Williams, and we're going to talk. Mike, it's been awesome. Thanks Thank a lot you. for hanging out. Had a good time. Awesome. Music makes the world go round. Serious effect. And then a little Grand Theft Audio All-Star hilarious this. Peace out. Peace.
Master Arson a beer. Alright, this next one's an instrumental. Jam out and listen to the sounds. Yeah. 